This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we normally review film franchises one movie at a time, uh, but not this week. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. Excited to start talking about this. I'm starting to work a lot more. Uh, I'm starting to work a lot longer days, so I'm just ready to turn that part of my brain off and talk about movies. Yeah, just spent the last about seven hours watching the irishman uh you know, trying to catch what you know what last few blind spots before recording so yeah instead of talking about a film series this week we're just going to be doing a retrospective on the movies of 2019 and just we have a whole list, list of categories that we'll run through um and then we'll end with our top 10 of the year so james just overall how are you feeling about uh the movies of 2019 like how does that rank against 2018 how like what what are your feelings about that year in film it's probably comparable to the last two um i 2014 or really 2014 15 and 16 were like for me gonna be just held as these like giants in years like Mm -hmm. so many of my like top 50 come from those three years um and and we haven't really gotten back to that kind of output since um so this is like 2017 and 18 for me where like if you take my like my top there they rank highly for me and i really like them but there's not quite that level of of consistency uh i, I actually was pretty much completely disappointed at the halfway mark being like there's there's just i i haven't overtly loved anything so far um so it ended up being super back heavy uh but at least the ones that i ended up loving i really loved so um yeah i mean it's a it's kind of keeping the status quo uh, for me, I definitely rank it a lot lower than last year. Like last year, all of my top ten were like rated at like four and a half stars or five. Um, where or they're all four and a half. But whereas this year, only the only six of them are. And I, I definitely echoing what you said, where the first half, two thirds of the year was very disappointing. Uh, six out of my top ten came out in the last three months of the year. So yeah, definitely towards the end, we got a bunch of good ones, but. For me, at least, it didn't quite pull the year back to you know to at least the average. It was still it was still kind of disappointing, especially a lot of the big studio films that I was looking forward to. Kind of going through the the list of most anticipated films I had for this year from last from our last year's retrospective, a lot of them ended up disappointing. Yeah, um, I wasn't really like I mean we'll talk about there was there's only one of like the bigger blockbusters that I ended up really loving, <laughs> and so. On that end, it was it was definitely disappointing. So just just kind of to give an idea, how many films have you seen this year? Uh, I only got to see twenty eight new films this year, which is, I feel like that's at least ten more than last year. Probably last year. Well, last so yeah, last year would have been my senior year. So I was infrequently at the theater. Um, so it is a step up, but um, I, like I looked at it and thought this is okay and then I was just looking at other people's and I'm like oh man <laughs> this is depressing uh, wait, so, so I, I saw uh, 75 this year there you then, go uh, see <laughs> uh, six were Netflix and then one from Disney Plus and then the rest would be theatrical releases 
so yeah, moving from there into our categories. Uh, so the first one is just movies we want to see uh, but missed so far this year. I feel like yours might be a little longer than mine. <laughs> mine makes me sad. Uh, well, I'll start with um, the one that hurts me the most. I am still angry that I missed Jojo Rabbit. I'm angry that you um, missed Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> this was one of my most anticipated movies of the... Like, the first trailer completely won me over. Um I am I'm in, I'm completely in love with uh Taika's sense of humor. I've been watching like he did a TED Talk 10 years ago and it's freaking amazing. Uh and like all of his interviews are so much fun. I just love him and I've been a big fan of Flight of the Concords. So, you know, just the humor side of it was already what gripped me, but hearing from everybody that it's one of his most emotional films and it's you can really feel his heart in it as well as his humor. Mm-hmm. Um I was just completely excited and that was just at a time where I was super busy and I was kind of constantly making the assumption that I was going to be able to go see it. And then before I knew it, it was gone, but it's, it's back in the theater because it's nominated. So I think I may try to catch a showing on Saturday. Uh, yeah. So just to run through some of these others quickly, um, I want to see portrait of a lady on fire just because it got a lot of buzz. Um, I really wanted to see the farewell, uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco yesterday, which I'll actually probably be watching sometime this week, um, and The Souvenir. And those are the big ones that stood out to me that, that I was hoping to be able to see. So yeah, I almost entirely saw the films that I wanted to see. Um, so like the ones I have are more are, are not like films that I desperately needed to see, but maybe more like, I kind of want to check that eventually. So there's Apollo 11, the... Um, documentary on i believe the uh, the moon landing that everyone's been praising says is really good uh missing link i'm not the biggest like a fan but this one doesn't this one seems to be a bit more heartfelt than a lot of the other ones and, and I, I thought the trailers were terrible but then everyone said oh no it's actually really good so i do want to check that out um this was uh, more of a kind of a guilty thing but uh wandering earth which is like this big <laughs> chinese blockbuster that was like one of the highest grossing films of the year like made over a billion just in China. And like if you watch the trailers, it looks absolutely crazy. It's about... The trailer is so much fun. Yeah, they're trying to move Earth to a new sun. <laughs> it's, uh, then the last one would be the Aeronauts. This is uh, Felicity Jones and uh, Eddie Redmayne on a balloon way high up in the sky and probably lots of vertigo. And it sounds like my cup of tea. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's all that I really miss that I really want to see. Moving into our next category, which is most underrated films, we each have a couple of these. And for my first one of, uh, that I think is the most underrated films of 2019 would be uh, Doctor Sleep. Um, it was it was well liked, but this is more kind of the underrated as in nobody actually saw it. It bombed. Um, but I, I really love this film. I, I'm not a horror guy, but I just I, I really appreciated the story. I thought the, the drama underneath was really good. I just loved how crazy and weird there there are just ideas and things happening in this movie that are just that are so unique and just different. There's a there's a scene that I'm going to mention later on that was one of my, one of like my favorite scenes of the year in this movie. Uh, but yeah, it was just a very unique film without just a really fascinating concept that just could got continually more and more interesting as it went, but also with a really great uh, you know dramatic score and also as a horror film, it had some some of the most disturbing scenes of the year without I thought I thought without ever kind of losing itself in that it was it was it had that really hard horrific edge but I never felt it was kind of like giving itself into that yeah so I I have a weird relationship with this movie because like on its own merits I actually 
do enjoy it. Uh, I do like Mike Flanagan. Um, I think he's a really interesting director. Um, and so there, and, and there are, I know the scene you're talking about, and that's actually going to make my list as well. There are sequences, sequences in this film that I would call like genuinely brilliant. It's just, it's so cool what you're seeing on the screen. And these ideas are really great. Um, but it's hard for me to, to not judge it as a companion piece to the shining. And I think one of the things it, like, I'm a big, I'm big on continuity. Uh, and it like, it doesn't mess with the, the continuity in terms of events, but it, it just, it doesn't feel like it meshes. Right. Like I, th my favorite thing about the shining is so much of the horror is just in the direction and like cutting from like quiet moments to these horrific images or just holding on to images for too long and like when to blare music and then when to just like keep you in silence for unnerving amount of times. It's there's mo like the imagery on screen is often disturbing, but so much of the horror is just in, in that style of direction. And this, like when this movie goes horror, I feel like, there it it loses any sense of like that subtlety in it it's just like here's here's ghosts and stuff like i i actively dislike what happens at the overlook um yeah i i'm if you're on the ending i i agree it's it's it and i i almost i almost kind of respect that flanagan did not try to ape kubrick at all like which i, he I like couldn't that. as it, like he's not kubrick so he's just going to make his own film that that is very obviously very respectful and building off of what Kubrick did, but I think it would have been lesser if he really tried to mimic Kubrick's style. Yeah, I, it's not even so much that I wanted him to mimic the style itself. It's just I, since he, you know, the the alternative in this case to mimicking his style was just sometimes feeling a bit more conventional. Uh, with the which I am fine for me, I'm fine with. Scenes. I'm not in love with The Shining, like. I, I can respect it, but I it didn't really do much for me outside of like respecting its craft. Yeah, well, so I I'm I'm a big fan of The Shining, so I, I just it was hard for me, I guess, to just sit down and appreciate everything Flanagan was doing. Also, I though recasting is a bold move, and I don't think it paid off at all in this case. Uh, for my next one, uh, I had Glass. Uh, and this is one it's next on my list as well. Okay, good. Uh, this is one that I did not really like the first time. Um, but when we rewatched it, uh, when we went through the, the unbreakable trilogy, it really grew on me. And I think one of the reasons it grew on me, or one of the weird things about the way it grew on me is I started to like it a lot more before we got to the rewatch. Like whenever I finished break, uh, unbreakable after watching it, it's like, Oh wait, it's weird. Like, some of those things he did in Glass was like it's kind of capitalizing on ideas I didn't even know were really present. And then again in Split, I'm like, there's there's a genuine through line to all of this that I completely that I I feel like I completely miss if I just take Unbreakable and Split together. But somehow adding Glass to the end really brought everything together. And I I kind of got over some of like I still have a lot of the same problems I had the first time, but I got a, over a lot of those. And whenever I got over them. I was able to see a lot more uh, of what Shyamalan was doing, and I appreciated his craft a lot more. It's probably his best-looking film. His cinematography is phenomenal and really cool use of music, so 
I really liked it a lot. Yeah, like it's by no means a perfect film. It does have a lot of like classic Shyamalan issues, but I also believe, I firmly believe this is one of those films that is simply misunderstood. And I, I think the entire Unbreakable trilogy is misunderstood. Like, I, I, for me personally, watching Unbreakable and Split, I don't understand, I, I really don't know what people were expecting going into Glass. Like, Shyamalan was, is ne- was never going to make a traditional superhero movie. He was always going to take it in a weird direction and do something you know, far more thematically interesting. And he did, and it was shocking and it was bizarre. And, but ultimately I think if you are really in tune with the themes of unbreakable and then the themes of unbreakable seen through the horror lens of split and that them both kind of smushed together in this weird way in glass, I think there's a very clear thematic through line. And for me, at least with all, as with all M, M. Night Shyamalan films, you really have no idea where they're going to go, but once it gets there and all the things kind of fall into place for the end, it, it, for me, they just kind of feel like beautiful and inevitable. And with, even with all the problems that Glass had, I think you know, it still had you know, what I love about a Shyamalan movie, or a good Shyamalan movie. And Glass movie. as a character is just phenomenal yes. by the end of this. Yeah. So my, my next under, big underrated one was The Kid Who Would Be King. Um, this is from Joe Cornish, who made Attack the Block way back in like 2011 or something. Uh, and this film completely went under the radar. Like, I think even less people saw this than saw Dr. Sleep. Um, but it's this really solid family adventure film. Like, while watching it, I was getting kind of flashbacks to, like, the first two Chris Columbus Harry Potter films or the, the first two, I mean, like, the, like, the first Narnia movie where it's this kind of big budget children's, you know, family adventure film that takes itself completely seriously and... And it, 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 there's no cynicism. It doesn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't feel the need to talk down. It, it just. It's. It, it, it's a. Like, it, it's hard to describe because there, I think there are so few films like this that give this guy treatment. Usually they 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 just turn kind of like s- silly and maybe cynical and kind of, or just like really slapstick and goofy. But to have a film like th- of this scale that just plays it completely straight and just a family adventure movie. I really appreciate it, especially since we just don't get it, and the genre just doesn't really happen that much anymore. So that was really well made, has some really like great themes and really solid acting. It starred Andy Serkis' son, who's really good in it. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's just like a really solid little family adventure movie. Like if you, if you didn't see it, I, I think you should check it out. That I actually should add that to the list of movies I missed that I wanted to. Um, I wanted to see because I, I actually really liked the trailer. Like it kind of hit that soft spot of like oh these are the movies i kind of grew up on and really loved like uh my next one is uh triple frontier i i have come to terms with being in the minority on this one and i guess i'm just gonna have to be okay with that uh i really like this a lot it's not amazing but i really really liked um uh i think isn't it jay something candor jc chander okay yeah i I liked his direction a lot. Like there, he, I, I think I really liked his patience more than anything. Uh, and I, I really like the cast. I like the idea of these kind of ensembles. Heist movies are always fun. Um, and so I, I, I also really love like putting together the plan. You know, a lot of people criticize these kind of films. Um, I mean, even Inception gets criticized because, you know, like, oh, well, after you see it, the first third is just explaining the rules and it's boring. Like, I love seeing that and I'll rewatch it all the time. And so watching them put together this plan was fun. And I, I think the heist itself is pretty amazing. Uh, I was incredibly um, tense that whole time and constantly building, like, how much is too much? When are they going to stop? 
And then everything after that is just a series of misfortunes of like losing this amount, this horrific thing happening, this plan not working out. And so with the entire film after the heist just being them reaping the rewards of of what they've done, uh, I thought was really cool. And there's, not to spoil it, but with the way they ended it, I feel like they were saying something that I liked a lot. Maybe I'm being generous and assuming they're saying something else, <laughs> but I thought it was really cool. So that's, uh, that's a movie I think gets uh, a little mistreated well that's really that uh number 60 out of 75 on my list so oh. the... <laughs> well that's the thing it was at three stars there were a hell of a lot of three star movies this year so yeah for me that movie just kind of just fizzled out and just like the entire the trajectory of the film was like great at the start it just slowly downhill for the entire time and I didn't hate it, but it just didn't do much for me. Uh, so my next underrated one was uh, Yesterday. Um, and I'm going to talk about this later on, so I'm not going to say too much about it now. But uh, this was just a really charming, delightful romantic comedy with this kind of sci-fi twist. It's you know, a, a romantic comedy by Danny Boyle. And it, it has that kind of crazy energy and sense of fun. Um, has awesome music. Uh, you know, it's, it's all Beatles music. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say any more about it because we'll talk about it later. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it, it got a lot of hate by people who wanted it to be a sci-fi film when like it's by the guy who made love actually and about time and like and all like four weddings of the future like it's it's that it's made by him it's, it's that it's that and it's that kind of movie and i think a lot of people wanted it to, to focus more on the sci-fi aspect and like and but i thought it, it wanted to be a romantic comedy about relationships and people and it's a really good one so yeah what a weird thing to want it to be about <laughs> like why would a, a movie about a, a guy writing beatles songs as if there was a, like that's that's weird yeah it's one that i really want to watch um and i'm excited to get to it so you don't have any more i i have two uh two more that i'll mention real quick because we'll talk about them later um one of them is el camino this movie came and went and nobody's talking about it anymore and it makes me really sad uh because i think this is a pretty perfect send-off for the series mm-hmm uh, about halfway through, I realized it was not at all the movie I thought it was going to be. And I kind of like came to terms with what it was deciding to be as it happened. And whenever the last shot happened, I felt like every bit of intention that Gilligan uh, had for this movie immediately hit me. And I was like, oh, I get it. I, I get why he wanted this this is almost it felt more for him than for anybody else uh and more for the character of jesse than anybody else and once that happened and it cut to credits i i went from like like this is good to okay now i really really love this yeah it's gonna show up on my list as well really really good film uh my other one is uh midsummer this is like this is well respected and well reviewed however I, I don't think it's as good as Hereditary, and few people do, but I think that fact has made it go pretty underlooked and under-talked about. Um, it's another one that feels like it just kind of came out and people moved on, but I think that Ari Aster's direction in this is incredible. It's one of the most like pretty-to-look-at movies, but in the surrealist, most creepy way. And, and again, he's... It's it's really cool whenever you look at it as as a companion to Hereditary, where they both deal 
with very similar themes, with very, very similar structure, just the way things run from the beginning to end feel similar, and he even uses a lot of very uh, similar visuals in his way of conveying the story, um, and yet they still so often look and feel so different while still feeling similar. I I just think it's a really great movie with really great performances, and it not being as good as Hereditary somehow made it, I don't know, worth not talking about. So moving on to the, the next the next category is pleasant surprises. Um, movies we didn't expect much from, but then uh, we turned out liking to like quite a bit. Uh, so, what, what's your first one? Uh, so, I only had one because I'm, I'm tr- I would try to not allow for a lot of duplicates on all of these lists, and there there just weren't a lot that I went in not expecting much from and liking instead. Uh, the only one I have was Child's Play. Uh, I'm not completely in love with this movie, but I do like it quite a bit. Um, and I think the reason it was a pleasant surprise to me is because it it had the guts to be something original. I feel like you know it it wasn't a slave a slavish recreation. It had very unique ideas to itself. I think it had a lot more heart than I was expecting. I, it cared about its its characters and relationships a lot, and uh, and I do think that there were some like interesting and fun kills and I don't know it. It's especially after binging a lot of slashers because that is my guilty pleasure genre. It does feel a step above most of what gets passed off for as classics, and so overall, I, I walked away having a having more fun with it than I thought I would. Yeah, I had a good time with that too. Um, so my, I have a, a three for this year. The first one is a Terminator Dark Fate. Did you see this one? I haven't. I'm actually planning on um, since it seems like this is probably going to be the last for a while. I think I'm just going to sit and binge through the series because um, I've, I've only seen Salvation. I have never seen the first two. Oh, that makes wow. Me sad. Dang. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's not an amazing film, but I think it's a really solid mo- action movie, which is, I think, saying something for this series. I am not a fan of the last two. But this one, it was it was very it was small. It was focused. It had it had a really kind of hard edge to it, which I think a Terminator film needs. I think the action was Overall, really well done. Occasionally got a bit too CGI, but overall, it felt like I think Tim Miller has just a really good eye for action and, you know, keeping his action sequences moving. The cast was really good. Yeah, Mackenzie Davis uh, is really fantastic. Um, like even Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton are, are really solid. They kind of come back. It's like, it's, it's like a really solid action film. Like Not amazing, but I really wasn't expecting much after, you know, where the Terminator series has been. Uh, the next one is uh, Tolkien which is a film that I did not really like the trailers all that much. Um, but it ended up being like a very pleasant kind of romance. Uh, it also had like a lot to, a lot of interesting things about, you know, friendships and growing up and what shapes, you know, young people in, into the men they become, which is a really, just a, a sweet, nice little film. You know, not amazing, but nice. Um, then the final one was uh, Cold Pursuit, which is a very odd movie. Oh, uh, this is another one that I meant to see. Yeah, it's like if you took the script for Taken 7 or, you know, insert generic uh, Liam Neeson old man action thriller and then dropped it into like an incredibly quirky, idiosyncratic indie film. It's strange. Like the, the, it's it's it. Uh, it's uh, it's it's so hard to describe because it just it just constantly veers into odd directions and there's just like a lot of visual comedy and gags and 
it's this weird examination slash meditation on violence and you know the 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 the, the consequences of the ripple effect and you know reaping what you sow it's it, it, but it's also very funny um it has a uh, tom bateman who, who we both really love from bird on the Orient express mm. as the villain he's like it's really fun and over the top um yeah really odd but i a movie but i found it very enjoyable now we come to <laughs> just a little bit of negativity uh, our least favorite films of 2019 uh, uh, so my first one was a uh, hellboy um yeah this <laughs> This is a really, really bad movie, unfortunately. Um, and it's one that was supposedly kind of destroyed by internal conflicts with the studio. As it came out, there were all these different articles talking about just how, like, almost like Suicide Squad level uh, levels of interference, uh, like where the uh, conflicts between like the director, Neil Marshall, and, uh, and uh, the star, David Harbour, between them and the producers. And then it was just a mess. And... Honestly, I think in the end, pretty much every single element of this movie is bad. Uh, some people like David Harbour, Harbour as Hellboy. I thought he was kind of terrible. Um, and I said that as a huge David Harbour fan. Um, you know, Sheriff Hopper is just one of the great characters. <laughs> but yeah, it's just everything about it just felt wrong. Just the, the tone, the ed- every, like every single edit, the CGI was all over the place and terrible. Just like nothing about the movie worked. And yeah, it's just not very not good unfortunately yeah it's sad this is one that i was really wanting to to root for because you know if there was i i'm i know i'm a much bigger fan of del toro's hubboys than you are i i really like those movies especially the golden army um and i was really sad when they weren't when they confirmed that they weren't going to be doing a third and if there was anything that was going to help me get over that it was when it was announced that this is going to be like r-rated is going to be like a horror movie yeah they're talking about they got the comic the original comics guys in to you know they were going to make it like really faithful and all that stuff yeah and and then the first trailer happened i'm like this is this is the same like this is the same but bad (laughs) like i at least based on the trailer there was no discernible tonal difference between this and the first two it just didn't look good yeah <laughs> exactly what's yours uh so i only have one as because i think there was this is probably the only movie that by the end of the year i really disliked because this is this is like least favorite films and i don't want to be cruel to other movies that were just a bit disappointing uh, so the one movie that i did not like this year was uh, it chapter two Oh, come uh, on. It wasn't that I, bad. I, this is the only time where I was just like almost excruciatingly bored. I th- I wanted to just say like this movie's structure is bad to me. There it is there's no structure. <laughs> this this movie doesn't move. This movie Oh, there's a structure. It's just a really bad. It's a very deliberate structure. <laughs> it's, it's not good it's, let's though. let's bring everybody together and then come up with some contrivance to get them apart and then let's bring them back together and send them back on another fetch quest and back to and it's like whenever they leave you could rearrange any one of the like the next 15 minutes in whatever order you want because it's like now this person let's go visit this person and it did the they made the weirdest decision because the first one already had i mean it was very similar to the first one i thought the first one had um found ways to keep the plot more singular and moving forward like and just better than this one did there are similar issues but the first one would often separate them and everybody had their own individual scare. Like this is the way Pennywise scared them as kids. And what's weird is instead of just like 
whenever they go off having flashbacks to those moments, they come up with new scares that could on like that could be those individual scares for the first one. It's just here's a second time that Pennywise really scared him. And so to me it's like was this just a series of like were they like scared like freaked out by Pennywise like three or four times growing I, I don't know, it just it felt weird and really unnecessary because every scene every flashback scene of them confronting Pennywise is completely reductive when taken with the first one or not reductive, but it completely um, repetitive. Um, I, it's just, and then the, the climax, the whole movie feels like 40 minutes too long. And I just remember halfway through the climax is people are choosing through different doors and getting covered in blood. I'm like, I don't care anymore. I am, I am so bored. None of this feels scary that's constantly undercutting every single moment with humor. He's like, Machete has no confidence in his own like horror direction. Mm. It just feels like he's constantly pulling, which the rug is crazy because himself. I think he's crazy brilliant at just making dis- at disturbing and like creatively horrific imagery. Like yeah, there are it, pictures that he paints that are just insanely creative. Yeah, but but he never capitalizes on it. Yeah, like he sets up work and then he just last minute it's like well let me undermine yeah, i don't think it's nearly as bad as that like i i like most of the drama i like most of the like the ideas and things it's going for but yeah the structure is completely irre- irredeemable um so yeah like i i it's like a three-star movie for me like and i wasn't as in love with the first one as the other people were so it wasn't like a huge step down but yeah it's not as good it just it just doesn't work very well as a movie but i found like the cast and it it just it, it I liked spending time with it, even though it's it's not a great film. I, I like to, I like spending time with them when they're together, uh-huh. but they're barely together. Yeah. Um. So my next one is uh, it's cats, and every <laughs> bad thing you have heard about this film is true and more. Like this, it's not a movie. Like uh, there have been a couple films in my life where I've like given serious thought to just walking out of and but i have never i wanted to walk out of a theater as badly as i did with watching this movie just because it is so freaking boring there's no sense of a narrative it's just literally a series of i think what i think are actually just mostly bad songs there are like two or three actual only good songs in the film every other song i think is kind of bad and it's just we have a song and weird dances, and it's all filled. And, and Tom Hooper shoots the entire film in this exact same way, which is just this kind of weird, steady cam that's kind of erratic and spinning around and zooming in. It's like a, like a, a drunk steady cam, like, and it's just really irritating. He doesn't know how to build the film, so like every scene is just like we're doing this song, and now we're doing this song, and now we're doing this song, and they're not good songs. The dancing's not that great. And also there's, <laughs> there's the cat people, the, you know, the horrifying cat people that people have talked about. And that's not even the worst thing in this movie. And also uh, t- t- Tom Hooper, he's got this thing where he wants – he hires people who can't sing for films that require singing. I don't know why he does it. It's so like half the cast, like Judy Dench and and uh, Ian McKellen, they're fantastic actors, but they can't sing. And so we're just we just gotta like sit there through these really painful songs by people who, who simply can't sing. It's just every, every every choice made in this movie was wrong. It was just really repetitive and just absolutely boring. And mm. it's also really weird and bizarre. And but not I'm all the more interested now. Not yeah, that's the thing that that is the thing. That's why I went. 
but it's just boring. Like there's every every single every single bizarre thing about this film you kind of get over in the first ten minutes, and then there is nothing on the horizon for the rest of the film. Oh, not oh, good. Sounds amazing. All right, so let's move into our, our favorite uh, scenes of the year. It's a new category from last year. Uh, so James, so what was what's your first uh, favorite scene of 20, uh, 2019? Uh, so my first favorite scene, um, and this is just random order, uh, is Captain America wielding Mjolnir. Okay, I have uh, portals, but that's all kind of the same thing. So I saw that you had that. And I almost kept it, but then I thought, like, the the moment in this movie that just, like, if I've ever come the closest to just standing, like, Shia LaBeouf gif <laughs> clapping and standing up, it was whenever the hammer goes back and Steve's holding it. And, like, bouncing the shield off of it and calling down the line. And, like, mm-hmm. I, it just, it gave me feelings... Like not these, you know. Like I, I went in knowing I was going to, exp- like I was going to have, or you know, be very emotional. It's this incredible send off, and I knew there was also going to be like, just these great like you know fist bumping moments, but this just like, it was everything that I could have ever wanted to happen with this character, and it was gorgeously shot. I, the the color in that whole last act is really amazing, and so just like the way the lightning reflects off of the suit and the shield and it's it's incredible that moment is just 10 out of 10 yeah so my first one is is portals from avengers endgame and it's it's everything that we felt over you know the last two movies all the pain that we had at the end of of you know avengers infinity war and just i love the whole way it's built you know where you have you know t'challa and you know coming out of wakanda the first one then just more and more portals opening up and then the moment that oh, got me was when the guardian, you know, the guardians flew out, and then Spider Man swung out and opened up his helmet, and you're like, and that is just it, it broke me. I like I broke down crying, just all of the emotion you know that t- Tony went through. You know, I watched you die. You know, he held you. You know, uh, you know, we watched Tony hold you in your in his arms as you died, and now after this entire epic three hour journey. You're back, and it was worth it. And now we're gonna go kick you know Thanos' ass, and it's it's just perfect. Yeah, so it's cinema, Mr. Scorsese. It is cinema. <laughs> uh, so, next one, James. So my next one is the final reveal in Knives Out. I saw that uh, too. <laughs> yeah, I just lifted this straight from your list because I saw it and I thought, yep, I agree. A donut. It's what's fun. Like I I really love these kind of detective movies and detective shows and stuff. And every single one of them ends up with this monologue of who did it and why and all of this stuff. And I am never going to get tired of that ever. There's something that's so if if it's in a story that I like a lot and you can execute that final scene, right? Just keep on doing it. I never want to see one of these movies end without this monologue because it's so much fun. And hearing it given from uh, Daniel Craig, who is just as awesome as it could possibly be in this was just so much fun. Uh, And I think one of the things that I like the most about it is, you know, without getting into too many spoilers, or I'll I'll try to avoid spoilers. This movie is very, I mean, in typical Johnson fashion, it, it feels very subversive. He does something that you really don't expect. 
and to still to be able to deliver on this like this great gotcha moment here's the plan while while not compromising the interesting thing he had done is is fantastic i i just love it yeah so like that whole sequence i'm I'm thinking back to another mystery film that you and i both love about murder on the orient express where it has one of those scenes and i think that scene is just is incredible but there are moments in that as he's like you know and you were this and you did that and you and this is how you fit in where it felt like he was just kind of magically coming to the conclusions yep this this scene as much emotional weight as that scene holds this scene is like airtight You're like, yes oh, oh oh the whole movie is so airtight and and it, it, it's not like where it's just one story the story is constantly inverting on itself and ch- like there are several points in the film where i literally did not know what kind of movie i was watching or what kind of mystery or if, it, if there even was a mystery like and he was constantly reframing and just redoing it and then to have all of every single element of genre and thing that he was playing with the entire time just fit together perfectly in this just beautiful, exhilarating, like 10 minute sequence of Daniel Craig explaining things in a Southern accent as everyone else kind of looks on in awe. And like, I, I'm like the, the cop character you know, the, who's the big fan of mysteries. Like we're like that as the audience, as it all goes down, it is just awesome. Um, so my second one is, is a uh, dancing from Jojo rabbit. And if and you better not spoil this, I know. So if you've seen the movie, you know what it means. Uh, this is this is the second the second scene of dancing in the film, not the first one, and I it made me cry. It's it's like this just beautifully poetic moment that just allows you to release all of the building emotions that you've had over the course of this film, and just you know in the in the joy of dance. And yeah, it's it's fantastic. Oh, I want to watch this so bad. Um. So for my next one, this is another scene that uh, are a couple of scenes that I lifted from your list. Uh, this is the apartment search and the standoff in El Camino. Um, I, I went and saw this in the theater at the Alamo Draft House. And this scene immediately reminded me of why I like why Breaking Bad is my favorite show of all time. And that's because there are just like as dramatic as it is, as emotional as it is, it's also like just, it's really inventive and it has like visual quirks. It does. It's, it never feels stale. And, uh, and especially with this apartment search, just whenever he starts lifting the floorboards and he leans over and the camera like tilts with him with the flashlight on his mouth or just the overhead shot yeah. of like fast forwarding as he's in all of these different rooms. And you're just like looking at him walk through the outline of the apartment. It just keeps going and going and he's trying new more and more places. And we're just kind of like building, we're feeling the building frustration along with him. And, and where that scene goes is amazing. Like, I don't think I've ever seen anything in a movie quite like how this scene ends you know and it's like if you like if you sat like me and you down in the room like the beginning of where the standoff happens and said how is this going to end and i don't think any of us would have ever come up with just how it eventually plays out and how perfect it feels when it does it feels like and the the ryan johnson connection is interesting because he did direct direct a lot of uh Breaking Bad. He directed like the single greatest episode of television ever with Ozzy Mendias. And so, and and this is a scene that feels like a Ryan Johnson scene where just it just everything feels right when it comes together, but it's so unexpected the way it does. 
there's a there's another standoff scene where he he confronts people and it it did something that breaking bad as a series did a few times where it's like it, it just feels like that perfect modern western um and the way like there's a certain shot that was just, like whenever i noticed what had happened i just i, just, I got so excited to be like ah oh, this is why vince gilligan is a g like these little moments are so perfect so my next one is uh in glass again i don't want to spoil it but as glass's master plan kind of starts coming together and, and we realize like something that we thought was the case is definitely not the case and pieces start falling into place and we move toward the climax and as someone who really fell in love with the character of glass in the first film just seeing him as you know who he was who he discovered himself to be at the end of the first film you know truly coming into his own and just with i think you know just m night Shyamalan at his absolute best is just exhilarating i think yeah what's amazing is he's silent for so much of this movie and yet i walk away from just mesmerized by him like he he defines so much of what I think about with this movie. And I don't think that they could have like ended his character arc in a, in a better way, at least like thematically speaking, I've, I've never known another character to be treated in, in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's just awesome. Um, so for my next one, I have the, uh, the final scene from the Irishman, uh, final as in actually like final final closing to credits or yes okay um so i'm gonna avoid spoilers um although like everybody kind of like this ends when he's you know like at obviously at his oldest it's it's him reflecting on this life that he's really no longer a part of uh and there's during the last 15 minutes there's just a couple of different conversations he has that were very, very affecting uh, for me. I think De Niro's performance is amazing. And like he's in typical Scorsese fashion. He's like, he there's VO with him, but the VO is so like uncinematic where like he's stuttering through it. And uh, it feels like an old man remembering. Exactly. And it, it's incredible. And it's one of my favorite last shots uh, it's probably my favorite last shot of the year, um, and it would rank pretty high overall. Uh, and so much of what I love about that movie is within that scene. Um, so I, I just think it's a really powerful ending to the movie. Um, so my my next one is uh, Ray and Kylo kicking butt. I'm just going to assume everyone has seen The Rise of Skywalker at this point, and if you haven't, you don't care. So I'm going to spoil it. Uh just when Ray reaches back her hand and Kylo's comes out with a lightsaber oh. and they start killing people and it's absolute joy. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's an action like it, John Williams takes Ray's theme and turns it into an action cue. Oh, that's so cool. And it's just I have a lot of issues with this movie. It's going to show up in a not so great spot later on in this in this episode, but that moment where just it just came together and I and the way JJ used uh we're gonna talk about Ryan Johnson a lot. The way JJ used Ryan Johnson's um 
the forced connection between Ray and Kylo was just so perfect. It's it's great. I have issues with the way he continues, and I use that term loosely. Uh, what Johnson did, uh, however, the the force projection thing is brought to the in, to the most perfect place it could be, and and both that scene, like that, feels like such a cool callback to the the last Jedi scene of him needing it and her throwing it, and then him mm-hmm. stabbing the guy through the eye. And, but also the follow through of the way the way Kylo's wanted that lightsaber the whole time. Yeah, now he's given it. Yeah, I it yeah. that scene works incredibly well. His shrug is like just the new greatest gif. Um, mm-hmm. But even like even the other scene, uh, like the fight in his quarters, I think is incredible. Um, yeah, like whenever just the way the with the the pot falling in one area and then splashing across the next, it's. Really, really cool use of, of what's possible with that kind of a that kind of ability. So for my next one, I and it's hard. This is kind of not even kind of. This is cheating completely. Um, and I'm not going to talk about it very long because I don't want anybody to know. Uh, but it's everything after the reveal in Parasite. It becomes something completely different. And every time I feel like I had an idea of what was going to happen, it it didn't happen. And it was this constant building of tension. And then just this, like, wh- what am I watching? What is this? And it just, it, the way it all unfolds really, really impressed me. And I, I walked out complete, like me and the, and the friend I saw it with were both just kind of like walking out in silence being like that. <laughs> What what was this movie? What is comparable? Like, I don't know. It's it's like truly a modern Hitchcock film. Yeah, like everything you when you say Hitchcocky, like it's all there. Yeah, and yeah, that last hour is pretty, or just the whole movie is so well built. But yeah, as things start to happen, it just gets crazier and crazier. I have some issues with that ending, but everything leading up to it is just so good. Um, so my next one is on from nineteen seventeen. And again, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, just running through the French village at night. Uh, have you seen this? You seen this movie? Yes. Yeah. So like, and it's it's kind of tied with that long shot from the trailer of him running across the trenches as the attack starts. Um, like those two sequences where it's just, is it going beyond just the technical of how the heck did they do this? I have, I, I you just don't understand what you're seeing because movies just don't do this kind of thing. But even beyond that, just the way it emotionally fits into this guy's journey and where he's been and what's happened to him throughout the film. I just like the running is like this moment of a bit huge catharsis, like because of the way the tension, the way he's built tension and allowed things to build up. So it's like the, the score swells. And I think that that cue of, you know, of that thing and, and the way the, the way it's all lit with flares, like it's just the, the crazy awe-inspiring technical filmmaking, you know, meeting the emotion of the story in a really great way. Yeah, th- on, honestly, that is one of the most jaw-dropping sequences I can think of. I, as it when it, when the camera first starts to move and and reveal what it's doing, I started getting goosebumps. Like, man, this is really cool. And then as it just played out, I. I was in my theater seat in awe. Um, it's some of the most amazing visuals I've ever seen combined with an incredible score. 
and, and like you said, like it's not it's not just this technical aspect. What what's happening with it? And even if it was, it would be like, oh, it's just a tech excuse to show off. It's all technical. Like, so so do you not like movies? Like, like it's movies. Even if we, this is why we go. Yeah, if we just yeah, limited to to the technical feat that this scene was, it's still jaw dropping. It's I I don't know. It's like no other scene I I think I've ever seen. It just it feels so innovative and inventive and specific and i i it's amazing it's absolutely amazing so uh my next one is the house invasion from once upon a time in hollywood um without spoiling anything all i'll say is this this is where everything that i love about tarantino comes to a head (laughs) blood and violence blood and violence and cursing (laughs) a lot of language and it's I we I know we do franchise fatigue. I've got to find some way in which I can just talk about this scene in full spoilers and how much I love it. The Tarantino uh, rewrites history franchise. Yeah, and so let's do it. But <laughs> I just by the end of it, I walked out just like giddy, like just bouncing around, being like, I got to because this is the first time I'd seen a Tarantino movie in the theater, and I just like just this brisk happy pace leaving the theater with the biggest smile on my face thinking like that he did it i'm so happy right now that sequence is amazing and i love it so i had uh two more that i'll go through real quick one is just a real quick mention uh it's the initial fight in antarctica and godzilla king of the monsters (laughs) this movie uh let me down a bit uh i i really like uh gareth edwards first one quite a lot uh it's probably my second favorite of like these kaiju films behind Jackson's King Kong. And I don't just, like I don't dislike King of the Monsters, but it it really abandoned a lot of the things that I loved about that first one. Yet with all that being said, uh, seeing the scale of this scene, there's some gorgeous shots. I really like the way it's shot from their point of view, just the camera looking up and like seeing you know, just seeing that these monsters' arms and tails crashed into each other. They brought back, uh, they brought back the original score um, from the Japanese series, which I loved. And they they did the coolest thing because, like, I I really love the original Godzilla roar, but I also like this new one. And they blended the two together in this scene, and it is a lot of cool things coming together that please me as somebody who who does enjoy watching these ridiculous movies. Um, and then my last one, uh, which is weird to call it a favorite. But it's it's the argument scene that, I, you know, whenever people talk about marriage story, it's it's the scene that comes up. Uh, it's some of the most incredible displays of acting I've ever seen. Ever. Like, if this were a short film, I would still just be like, just let them win best actor and actress. <laughs> but let's cheat the rules and put them there. Um, it's some of the most realistic, like uncomfortably realistic emotion I've ever seen where you you're just like I'm a fly in a wall and I really don't like the wall that I'm at and I just want to fly away uh but it it just it hit me in a very emotional way a very like guttural way of just like this isn't this isn't actors these are people and I shouldn't be watching this this is a, a couple it's it's incredible and so weird to call it a favorite but I I it's it is an amazing moment in film so moving on to our next category, uh, this is a film that isn't great, but that we really enjoyed. 
Uh, so I'm going to start out, and uh, there weren't, there really weren't a lot. Just like there weren't a lot of, you know, ter- surprises this year. There weren't a lot of like films that weren't very good that I really liked. Most either I I I thought were good or were just bad. Um, so these aren't aren't like aren't like huge recommendations. Of. So the first one would be uh, Michael Bay's Six Underground, and I know this film is getting like really ripped apart, um, but I think. When Michael Bay isn't doing Transformers and Pearl, and I haven't seen Pearl Harbor forever, but I'm assuming I probably won't like that one too much. But like when he's just doing his crazy thing and and it doesn't involve giant robots, I can just I can just get in the right tune to make that work. And just you know, my, like the, Michael Bay is an artist. Like he when he's when he's doing the, doing what he does best. And just the chaos is exploding and people are dying and horrible you know, humor and terrible, terribly bad taste is happening. It just, it just really works for me. And so this is a, it's a bad movie. The script is incomprehensible. But as it goes and just whenever action is happening and I think the, the characters have really good chemistry together, it's just it's just crazy, terrible, like repulsive nonsense. But I had a fun time watching it. It's it's funny how, you know, like. I mean, I'm not a Michael Bay fan, really, but I, I think that... Have you seen, like, The Rock or Armageddon? I haven't. And that... So, I... Those are films that I do think that... I, like, what about, a, like, 13 Hours or uh, even Pain and Gain? I, I like 13 Hours. I don't think it's amazing, but I, I think it is a genuinely good movie. And I think there are some amazing sequences in it. It's, but it, it it's always weird to me whenever people want to dismiss him entirely. Like, for what he does... Yeah, like there's there's genuine respect for him by peers in terms of like the way he does his action and so i mean i honestly wouldn't mind seeing it for that um i haven't ended up seeing it yet though so the only ones that i have listed are um godzilla king of the monsters which you know i've already said you know i'm not an enormous fan of um uh, but it had moments that made me feel like a kid <laughs> I remember the car ride back home from the theater. <laughs> you were like, we were like alternating between that was this, like that was so stupid. The story made no sense. But oh my gosh, did you see when? when I don't even know what, what, what's the I don't even know the, the creature's names. But when, uh, King Ghidorah. Yeah, when they did things. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so like, it's weird. I I kept going back, and I still go back and forth between it, whether I like it more or dislike it more. But I I think what comes out mostly positive is that. Really, this is this is the movie that I grew up with, especially like this. This was if you took all of the dumb '90s era, the uh, the Heisei series, and gave like modern effects to them. This is what it is. Of just for some reason, there are you know giant like building sized airplanes with new bombs and. Nothing makes sense at all, but everybody's super proactive about doing stuff that makes no sense at all. And it ended up. It, I think my disappointment is because it exists in the same continuity as Gareth Edwards' film, and that hurts it a bit. Whereas the '90s ones, I mean, they're all ridiculous, but I still enjoy it. Uh, and the other one would be um, *Child's Play* because you know it's not great, but I I did like that one quite a bit. All right, uh, so my next one is. Uh... Next one is a Gemini Man, uh, that Will Smith movie where he fights his younger self. And it's not a great movie. The script is pretty bad. Uh, but I think the way Ang Lee directs action sequences is pretty spectacular. There's just, there are things 
that happen in the way he shoots and directs an action scene that I just you I've never seen before. And he's like every sequence has these crazy things that are just completely new and and creative. And he just he just has such a unique way of shooting the action that I, I just loved every second that people were, you know, shooting or punching or whatever. And the final one was Alita Battle Angel. And this is another movie that's, you know, not great at all. Like I think just the the way the way the story is constructed is incomprehensible and not good. But I think Rosa Salazar as the lead is really likable and she gives a really heart, good heartfelt performance despite the, the giant rear CGI eyes. Uh, you forget about that, you know, five minutes in. I think the world that was created was really cool. The It's another one with the action sequences are really exciting and well done. Um, and like Robert Rodriguez is all over the place as a director, but I like when like he's working for someone else and they he has to like force himself to calm down and make a real movie with like actual quality and consistency. Like, I think he's actually a pretty solid filmmaker. Um, so it's just a really fun action movie with a really cool world, even though I don't think the story comes together all that well. Um, so the next category is most disappointed. I have a feeling that we will share <laughs> at least one on this list. Um, yeah. So, James, uh, what were some of your most disappointing films of 2019? Uh, so just to mention the ones that I've already mentioned before, uh, despite being on the movies that weren't great but I liked anyways, it's also going to be here as Godzilla King of the Monsters because despite me still liking it, um, I was disappointed because I went in very hyped. Um, re- I thought the trailers for this were phenomenal. Um, and it did. I tried to warn it, you. I did. It did not meet my expectations at all. Those trailers were mythic. <laughs> um, uh, it chapter two. Uh, I, I'm not head over heels in love with the first one, but I like the first one a lot. Uh, and this one did not at all meet that. Um, so my first new one here is uh, Ad Astra. It's on my uh, list too. Yeah, this one, I I don't outright dislike it. I think I do. it's so like yeah we did. We're both disappointed in it. You much more so than me. Like I I like it more than I dislike it. I think I have it either at a three or three and a half. It's just it. The people who love it, like, put it on the level of like our greatest contemplative sci-fi has ever made like it's i've seen people put it up there with like your 2049s your interstellar your your ex machinas and it's it is not that by a long shot um i think it's it's often pretty look uh, pretty to look at although i i think even the cinematography is overhyped there's a couple sequences that are uh just gorgeous the opening um the opening is fantastic. The moon chase is a phenomenal sequence. Yeah. It's it's incredible. And uh and despite the fact that I have absolutely no idea why the sequence with Ruth Nega's character leads where it does. Mm-hmm. That's I have no idea why she's in the movie, but okay. Nothing about her character, her motivations are the most abs- like everything she does is what in reality she should have not wanted to have happened or do. That's every character in this movie, but okay. Uh, so, but that sequence is beautifully shot. I love the lighting. I love the shadow. They, it's a great use of of Mars as a location. Um, but I just, I found it often like pretty boring. Yeah. There was no sense of awe or wonder at space. And like, I get that. Like, that's you know, with where the movie's conclusion, I kind of understand that. But I think even that's misguided because I think you could have come to that conclusion by showing the wide emptiness of space more. But this is just so constrained and and just travel itself is montaged through pretty briskly to where like 
this is meant to feel like a journey. It's like, oh, well, now we're on the moon. Oh, and now we're on Mars. Oh, and now we're at our final destination. It's like, wh- the the bulk of this movie is made up on the locations and so little of it actually happens on the journey, which just, it feels an active conflict with what it's about. So it's, it's a, it's a good several steps down from the best of the genre. And this film, I think kind of characterizes my, why I have such a hard time with uh, just hard sci-fi, I guess is low concept a phrase like low concept sci-fi where I feel like so often these filmmakers will come to us they have an idea i want to get across this idea explore this theme and you know character and plot be damned i'm going to make it happen and so it's it's so many of these films feel like they're trying to force a a, a square peg through a round hole and just bending the characters and motivations and plot to just try and just all the focus is on the idea and the story just completely breaks and falls away at some point in the film. And it happens a lot. That's what happens here. Like the characters and their motivations and don't really make much sense. And there's very little consistency. It's just, it feels like he's just going for this idea. And it was really frustrating. Personally, I I have a lot of issues with the, the themes of the film and what uh, James Gray is trying to say. And, and which is like, and like comparing this to the film like Velocity of Z, which I really enjoyed from was it like 2016 or, or yeah 2016, which I thought was I I didn't I didn't I don't love it, but I really respect it, and I thought it was a really empathetic look at flawed men and and this kind of obsessive personality. Whereas I felt that that was like a very empathetic look that made me fall in love with these characters with all their flaws and all their issues, just the problems of their mindset. Whereas I felt this film didn't. I didn't feel the empathy for the characters from this. This film felt much more like it kind of had mostly just disdain for its characters. Um, even though it was, it was very similar kind of character arcs and journeys and themes, it was it was just weird. Yeah, I, I think we we probably disagree on what some of the themes are or or things like that. But even like it, it's not even something that I'm willing to fight for passionately because I I have the movie like like you brought up Lusty is it like that's. That's a movie that I do really like a lot. I I probably do love it. It's it ranks pretty highly for me in 2016, and any anything I could get from from this film is is there, but better. So my first and most disappointing film of the year was Aladdin. Uh, this was on my most anticipated list last year. Uh, it's Guy Ritchie doing Aladdin. Like that makes sense, but somewhere along the way, it just didn't happen. If you told me if I watched this movie, you told me it was directed by Guy Ritchie. I would say you're a liar because there are about 17 seconds of this movie that have his style. Well, okay. There are two, the, the musical sequences, the two musical sequences up, uh, friend, a friend like me and Prince Ali are actually really fun. They, they have a style, but otherwise it's so bland and flatly directed that it's just every, everything exciting. You think Guy Ritchie making a lad, this crazy gangster movie in Persia. It just, it doesn't happen. It feels so flat and lifeless. And I don't hate this movie. I, I think the story of Aladdin is good, so it kind of carries the film. Will Smith is very good. The cast is good, but just the whole Guy Ritchie Aladdin thing, which is why I wanted this movie so bad, just never came through, unfortunately. We'll have the gentleman soon enough, so that yes. wound will And everyone's saying that's like a return to form for Guy Ritchie, so I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled. Yeah. So, my next one, and this will bring disagreement, is uh, Ford v. Ferrari. And I, I only say this, I, I, I hesitated putting this here because it implies that I think it's it's bad. 
and I don't think it's bad at all. It's just it sounds like the <laughs> there was a lot of hype around it, and a, for a lot of people, it was looking to meet that hype. And and so like I mean the the Rotten Tomato score was super high. I know it's it's in the nineties, and uh, I started to see it pop up on a lot of people's like best of the year lists and. And so I, you know, I really loved Logan. Uh, it's my second favorite in in that series. And so I was, I was coming here, and I actually watched Walk the Line for the first time uh, that year. And so I was like, well, his last movie was great. I loved his uh, biopic. So he's doing another true story. It will probably be amazing. And the races look awesome from the trailer. And and the only thing that didn't like disappoint me were were the races, which I thought were pretty incredibly shot. Like they they were genuinely thrilling. Um, but the the core drama, it it just feels it felt very contrived and repetitive. Like the the whole film feels like it's being carried by this. Well, Ford doesn't want Ken Miles to do this, and it's like okay, well now let's fix this, and then. We move on 10 more minutes and it's like, well, now Ford doesn't like Ken Miles doing this. It's like, okay, well, let's fix this. And well, now it's just that again and again. And it it almost felt like the movie knew that that wasn't enough of of a conflict. And so they introduced this weird like drama with with Ken Miles and his wife, which leads to what I would like. I I want to create a category for worst scene of the year so I could nominate (laughs) this scene. I, I, I could not believe it was happening and so by the end of it, I was like, I like this. I had, I genuinely had a lot of fun here. Matt Damon and Christian Bale are fantastic in it. Being from the South, it's nice to hear an actor do a Southern accent and not just cringe at it. I actually thought his was like Damon sounded like he was just from here. Just, just some boy you'd see down the street. Um, and, and seeing Christian Bale have like, he, he plays a lot of tortured characters and to see him have fun was, was fun. But I think the only reason it lands in this category for me was the hype around it because at the end I was like that's that was a good movie, but it, it just it it's it falls very short of of where it's held by a lot of other people for me. I agree with some of your critiques, but not to that extent. Um, uh, so my next one is uh, Dark Phoenix. Um, I'm one of the like three people that has been really on board with the entire reboot. I love. You know, I, I absolutely love this new cast of X-Men characters, McAvoy, Fassbender, all that. And I even liked uh, Apocalypse. Um, I know that's not very popular to say. And so I was really hoping that they could close it out on the, you know, this series out that I, I have a lot of emotional investment in. And I love this cast in a really good way. And it's not a terrible film. It's like one of the most aggressively <laughs> mediocre films I've seen where everything is just done in an okay way just to get to the next scene. It's just, it, it's never bad, but it's never really good either. And it was made by a first time director, Simon Kinberg, who I, I, I was hoping could do it because he's, you know, he's been so integral in, in the X-Men, X-Men series, but it also, it had some kind of the, the rise of Skywalker thing where it just, it felt like it was kind of in conflict with previous films, like the, the, the sense of continuity between like, and not, I'm not talking about like, like the early original X-Men trilogy, but like the previous film apocalypse or days of future past where it felt there was like, there was like a lot of creative conflict. Like there was issues between him and singer that he was now trying to correct in the film. It just, it just didn't really work out. Unfortunately. Yeah. I, I liked apocalypse, but um, I wasn't a huge fan. I wasn't really wanting to rewatch it. It was hard for me to get hyped for 
Dark Phoenix, and when, as the trailers came out, I was just thinking, like, this... It, it didn't do anything to excite me, so it, I, I ended up missing it. But I'm sure when we get to the X-Men franchise, you know, I'll, I'll end up having to see it then. And... There was one sequence that actually gave genuine thought to adding to my favorite scenes. Like, the final train climax, which was entirely a reshoot, is actually really fun and really creative, and we get to see all the X-Men just go all out and kill a bunch of people, yeah. and it's awesome, but uh, it's, like, almost from a different film. So our, our final most disappointing film of the year is James... Uh, well, it's not Star Wars. It couldn't. It couldn't be. Like, it, uh. no, it couldn't be. It was amazing. It's in my top ten. It's my number one. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Rise of Skywalker. Um, that movie came out, and it was my most anticipated film of the year. Or I can't remember if it was Endgame or this, but it was. It was one of those two. And it's not a terrible film. It's not a truly bad film, but. The things, like everything I think it needed to do to cement this sequel trilogy as, you know, yet another excellent, it's hard to say yet another because there's only been one truly excellent trilogy so far, but you're like, as like another vital, excellent, you know, step forward for the Star Wars saga, I think it kind of whiffed on all the important things. It got a lot of side things right, like a lot of moment to moment stuff is good. But like the big, deep, thematic things that this trilogy was shaping to be about, the story arcs, the character arcs, it failed or at least didn't do the thing that was like, I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't, I, we, we could talk about this movie for hours and we will. When we get to this movie, it's going to be a really long review. I, I, I'm giving you serious thought to separate into two episodes just because of all the thoughts I have in this movie. But yeah, it's just, it, it, as a close for this trilogy, I think it's an abject failure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm honestly still in partial denial. <laughs> like, I whenever the review, like, whenever the Rotten Tomatoes score was revealed, my heart genuinely dropped. Oh, I was completely depressed, like, for a full two days. <laughs> I was... Because I remember we were both messaging, like, we've been defending this for a year, like, since 2015. Like, we've... We've loved this. I, the Last Jedi, to me, is, like, every... It's proof that you can still be inventive and fresh and, like, just bring an incredible amount of, of craft to to the series and i think force awakens I think, I think all, all of, of star most... wars has been all of new disney stars has been doing that like like you had the force awakens and solo proving that you could just have fun and then you have your rogue ones which are going in a different direction then you have your last jedis which are like pushing the series forward in these like mind-blowingly important thematic directions and then this film came out <laughs> yeah and, i mean i i agree with everything you said where like the, in the moment, there are certain moments where I, I was like, okay, that was cool. That was fun. C-3PO is fantastic. He's hilarious, and I'm ha- I have so much fun with his character. Here. Every second of John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, and Oscar Isaac on screen together is pure cinematic gold. It, it's a lot of fun. Babu Frick is great. <laughs> uh, I love him. But, I, like, yeah, I had, like, there was just a list of big things that it needed to do. And I was coming to terms with it. It wasn't going to check off every box. I knew that. There's, unfortunately, the external conversation. There, there was just too many things. I, I knew this wasn't going to be the movie that I wanted it to be entirely. But I was like, so long as it can tick like two or three of these boxes, I'll, I'll be golden. I'll be happy. It, <laughs> it didn't, like, in terms of like big 
things. It, it didn't. It, it didn't. It didn't hit any of. Yeah, them. Yeah, it, it, it created new boxes, and some of those boxes it did well, and some of them it flubbed. But yes, yeah, some of the boxes it created, it didn't even check, and it, like, I, I, I'm starting to come to terms with certain certain things. I think, despite what they do with Ray, I, I think they get to a similar place they were heading. It's just not in a nearly not nearly as powerful as it could have been. Yeah, I feel like the, the character of Ray and characters of Ray and Kylo, they end in places that I can live with. I don't like I don't want to vomit when I think about what the, where the characters ended, but like the actual themes of what the story was meaning, what the character was meaning are fundamentally undermined. And you know, a lot of a, a criticism of the trilogy is you know, like what what is the point? What is what is the reason? Why why do we revisit? What what importance is there? Why are we? Why is the galaxy you know only three decades later? Why is it back in turmoil? And I could have answered that at the end of the last Jedi. <laughs> do what? I said I could have answered that question really well and very profoundly at the end of the last Jedi. Uh, now, and, <laughs> and to me, like you know, with this being the Skywalker saga, I was. To me, if if I had my way, my answer to to the question personally would be like, we, the Jedi Order is still kind of up in the air, like maybe not so at the end of Return of the Jedi in 1983, but after the prequels and the Clone Wars and and a really cool elements introduced in Rebels, I the Jedi Order is not resolved, and I think there's incredibly, and I thought with what they were doing with Luke on Octu and with where they were headed with Rey and that incredible last shot from the Last Jedi, I thought we have set ourselves up to to just in in you know just write out in enormous letters. This is the point. This is what this has been about. This is why we needed this. There there are unresolved to give us a future. Exactly. Uh, to me, there were just these unresolved threads and a, a promise for a future that this movie, like, <laughs> everything was set up for it. Everything was laid out. They rolled out the red carpet for these kind of reveals and, and final thematic statements. And it's just, it, uh, it was such a, I don't know. Yeah, I think be- beyond, like, J.J. not, like, J.J. disliking The Last Jedi and wanting to you know, give a middle figure to Ryan Johnson and change things. I just don't think he understood The Last Jedi. And so he just made entirely new conflicts and new character arcs, which at every point where The Last Jedi was original were derivative. And some like derivative storytelling can be good. And some of the storytelling in that film is good, but it's like even like it's like good derivative or mind-blowing original and he chose the derivative at every point. Yeah. The only the only thing that is comparable to it was me walking out of Justice League. And it's a similar thing of you defending that movie for years and hoping that we yep. could wrap up that trilogy and or yeah, series. This promise of like, oh, you'll see. All you haters will see. We've got this last trilogy where everything will come together and it'll all make sense. And also a director that I very much love and respect, you know, taking over and it's still not working out. Yeah. And I think Justice League is a worse movie. But I think this hurts more because as much as I absolutely adore Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, this is Star Wars. This is this enormous like series. And this is this is the I know we're going to have more. 
But I, whenever I complain about this as the ending, you know, I always get the same response of like, well, you know, you're going to get more. It's like, but this is the end of the Skywalker saga. We're going to get new stories. We'll go in new directions. But this, this episode one to nine, this is the end of that. You know, it's, it's like, it's endgame. We know there's mm-hmm. a phase four, but this is the end to this story. And I have to live with that, and it just it hurts. Yeah, and it's like it's one, it's one, it's the worst. It's just the worst thing that a sequel can do. Like there are bad sequels, but their badness is entirely self-contained, and you can just kind of forget about them, pretend they don't exist. And this even the the badness of this film is such that it kind of infects the rest of the series. And I, I think it makes it makes some of the original trilogy worse, and I think it definitely makes the previous two films worse. And like. There's nothing worse that you could do as a sequel. Yeah. Well, there we go. All right. Moving back to some positive things. Um, Before we move into our honorable mentions, I want to do our favorite musical scores of the year. Um, So I'm going to start um, with my first favorite one. It was the score for Jojo Rabbit by Michael Giacchino. Michael Giacchino is just always fantastic. And this one, it's it's really fun. It's, it's, It's very buoyant and childlike but also there's kind of a delicateness about it there's like a lot of children's choirs like very bubbly and twinkly and kind of really good at capturing you know that that joy of youth and but also when the dramatic stuff comes around it it lands that as well it's just a really i think one of my favorite scores from him you know since his work you know his fantastic work with pixar uh, so for my first one, uh, I have uh, Thomas Newman's score for 1917. Oh yeah, this score is pretty incredible to me. Yes, um, it's incredible how much it, how much it sets the tone for scenes and how little it does. Like the opening ten minutes to this movie, d- despite not like being you know like this the the french village scene that we referenced earlier of just like me sitting there with my jaw dropped in awe of what's possible it was it was surprisingly close to just being as impressive like just as we walk through these trenches and we have these conversations i my biggest fear was that the the one shot thing would feel like little more than a novelty and just kind of constrict the narrative but it really changed the way i feel like my brain was just processing and perceiving the movie where it feels genuinely real. Like it feels like you are walking through here and the way the music walks alongside that feeling is amazing. Like there's just these low hums and this subtle piano music as we're like exploring these horrific locations. And then whenever it needs to swell, it just, it blows you away. There's, there's softness to it. There's excitement. It's just, it's, it does the best thing that a score can do to me where it's just, it fits the scene like a glove. It's just, it's so perfect for whatever you're seeing on screen. Yeah. And you would have thought with a film that like this is aiming so much for realism with that one take, they would have chose a much more subdued kind of naturalistic sound. That's almost more of like kind of the soundscape, like, like uh, Hans Zimmer's been doing with movies like Dunkirk. But what we got was like a very, very, you know, melodic musical sounding score that, you know, had some really strong themes running through it. It's like, it's a proper musical score, but it also never pretty. takes you out it's of the very pretty. Yeah. It never takes you, never takes you out of the moment. Yeah. That's definitely, it's definitely on my list. Um, so my next one is, uh, it's from how to train your dragon to the hidden world by John Powell. Um, like if you have never listened to the scores for the how to train your dragon films, you are missing a, 
I think some of the best film music ever made. Like that, that the first and second ones, I think those scores are just all up in my like top ten of all time. And this one continues the tradition. It's, it's not. I don't like it quite as much as those films, but uh, as much as those scores, but. It's still just so musically beautiful and there's so many just amazing moments and the way the way he creates and uses themes and folds them into his his uh, score is just absolutely beautiful. My next one is uh, Hildur Godnaditers. However you pr- <laughs> I, I have no idea how to pronounce this last name. Uh, it is her score for, the, uh, for Joker. Uh, this is one of the most haunting scores to me. Um, and it's another one where it just it fits the images on screen incredibly well. Um, I just the the track bathroom dance. Mm-hmm. It, it's just it gets under your skin and it's unnerving. Um, and, and the way it builds, where like it's it's sad when it needs to be sad, but then it'll like it'll celebrate with the character when he celebrates and. And during the final moments, whenever like the same theme swells, it, it feels so wrong because you know what the score has been before, and hearing the same melody but in this big way, it's 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 a really really fantastic score. I think it might be the one that I want to win at the Oscars. It won at the Globes, and we'll see if it does here. There's a lot of amazing scores. Uh, well, I say a lot. There's there's a there's a few that I would be happy with. Um, but, but yeah, this one I just I found super impressive and and already very like very cemented in my brain. Uh, so my next one is uh, the Knives Out score by Nathan Johnson, who is I think uh, Ryan Johnson's cousin. Hmm. This is it's very classical, like mostly piano driven. It, it just but it's it's really lively. It is it's, it plays like a character throughout the rest of the, the entire film, constantly setting the tone and it it has that the that playful nature that is just intrinsic to a Ryan Johnson film and it's a lot of fun to listen to. Uh my next one is Robbie Robertson's score for The Irishman and there's not really a lot of score this is I I normally wouldn't do this. I I'm putting it here almost exclusively because of the main theme which I am over the moon in love with. I I've had it on repeat at work uh and in the car ride and just as as I'm like just do the dishes or clean or like or whatever here it's it's so cool it feels like you're just out in the wild west uh um, i'm gonna make you hate me and say i don't remember what the listen to the main theme from the irishman it's it's this incredible uh like the whole thing it's just a, a drum beat with a harmonica and a cello that are taking turns like it's the same theme, but the harmonica will play through it, and then the cello will play through it, and then the harmonica, and then the cello, and the like. The cello goes like the deepest sounds ever, and it's just amazing. Uh, it's like despite being the only, at, at least from my memory, because most everything else I think are, are just uh, actual songs. It's one of the. It's genuinely one of my new like favorite, isolated movie themes. Um, so my next one is Avengers Endgame by Alan Silvestri. Yeah, that 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 portal scene, the track portals, um, is one of just like the most <laughs> exhilarating pieces of music I've heard this year. Um, yeah, he's just it's kind of he's culminating, you know, the not just you know, the whole MCU, but you know, his Avengers theme that he created in the first Avengers and and evolving it, and you know, working off the incredible score from um, Infinity War. But yeah, just really good stuff. 
I, I'm definitely needing to, to listen to the score in isolation. I actually only saw Endgame once, uh, which makes me sad. That makes uh, me sad. But uh, I, I, rem- like, I don't have the, the, the score solidified in my mind the way I do with like Infinity War, which is... I think I may. I think I said it may be like my favorite overall score, like start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm anticipating really enjoying the score a lot more after I rewatch it, and especially after I listen to it in isolation. Um, my next one is Michael Abel's score for Us. Uh, I am not nearly as high on the movie as a lot of people are. I like it quite a bit. I think. Uh, Jordan Peele does something that I, I appreciate and respect, but I do think it it undermines the movie at large. His, his movies are social commentaries or satire. Like there's there's a lot of subtext to them, and I think that for large portions of the film they work. But ultimately, I feel like his movies place so much importance on the subtext that and, and he but he still wants to just go for it for the surface narrative that we just the movie comes to a crossroads uh, although i guess i'm getting into my review of us right now and not the score despite my uh problems with the movie itself the one thing that i will not dispute at all is that uh the score is amazing i think the main theme is already on track to become like one of the modern like iconic scores probably more memorable and iconic uh than the film itself will end up being ultimately um but just hearing the like just the plucking on those strings just sounds unnatural um and from the opening shot as the credits start uh appearing on the screen it just it creates a mood and an environment that's just really incredible um so my next one is a uh, glass uh, by west dylan thordson um I still weep every day that uh, James Dune Howard did not get to come back and, you know, create his magnum opus for this film. That said, I really like the work that West Dylan Thornton does. Um, it's, it's one of those very uh, naturalistic kind of elemental scores with like a lot of a lot of just odd sounds. But he also I think he also does some really interesting things with themes. Uh, just the, the atmosphere he's able to create is really compelling. And just to evoke emotion with just some of the oddest sounds, the way he is pretty, really, really, um, really well done. So for my final one, I have a Randy Newman score for Marriage Story. This would, this is taking his work for Toy I don't Story. understand those two f- phrases being put together. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's, it works amazingly well. Like, is this movie. Pixar Randy Newman? Or? This is this is, but that, that's the thing. This is Pixar Randy Newman, and so it's like, if you think about all of his like. Now, does Adam Driver saying you've got a friend in me? I gotta know that. No, he just cries a lot, and I cry a lot. I want him to say um, you got a friend in me. Do a duet with Scarlett Johansson. Like that's that's all I, I want in the world now. But the, like this is if you just took the. I mean, there are, there are lighter moments. The movie is surprisingly funny. And, and the score just kind of bounces along during those moments. But it's like, if you just take those deeply sad moments that the Toy Story trilogy really goes to, and you just use that, like those sad, isolated sequences for those characters and just like score the film that way, that that's what this is. And it's, but it's music, it's beautiful. Like I've been listening to this, um, I've been listening to a lot of film scores actually in my car. This is another one that I've listened to on the way to work. It's it's so 
musically it's so pretty and it just immediately elicits an emotional reaction so my next one is the rise of skywalker uh by the one and only john williams um you know whatever issues i have with the film the music is obviously john williams is gorgeous um and you know the way he continues and builds off of previous themes there are a couple new themes as well and there is a moment where he just plays the star wars theme over a scene and even though i was like i was like deeply frustrated with the film at this point but as that was happening i just got the biggest smile on my face because it was just the perfect moment for that to happen and you know, it's, it's, it's a culmination. The film's a culmination. I think the score is the one of the things that stands up to that. And the other one is uh, Dark Phoenix by Hans Zimmer. You know, not a great film, but actually a surprisingly good score and a really fun listen. All right, now we're going to move into our honorable mentions before we move into our top 10. So the first one is uh, Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell. Um, just, it's just, you know, it's a really solid, subdued film. Like, Rich, uh, Clint Eastwood's style in recent years just kind of fascinates me with how, how low-key everything is and and simple and yet as yet everything feels like it's, it's just told just just right despite there being absolutely no flair or even style to it all and so like as the story is evolving and we're just thrust into these really horrible circumstances with this man off paul Hauser, really really good actor um should have probably should have gotten a best a best actor nomination um and just kind of following this 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 really interesting awkward very unique individual through this really horrible circumstances. And it's just a very simple, empathetic movie that kind of, that just get, grounds us in his experience with a lot of great performances. Uh, so for my first one, I have El Camino from Vince Gilligan. It's one of mine as well. He, he only directed a uh, TV prior to this. I, this is his feature film debut. And I think it's a really, really strong one. As we've already said, just with that scene alone, he brings a, a lot of, of style to it like everything that's happening is really really cool like the way he moves the story along um I, I like a lot but just like moment to moment there are just these visual flourishes that are really really cool and uh and he, he also displays a lot of patience as a director like he lets scenes move the way they need to move Th- that first scene with uh, robert forster oh that scene is incredible is it's like nothing, like there's nothing exciting happening, but it's just two guys, like the, as far as like the filmmaking, but it's just two incredible actors allowed to go at it with each other. And he, he knows when to, like this movie is like incredibly stylistic in some moments, but also very, very subdued in others. And it's just, it's whatever is just, he just finds the perfect style for whatever scene he's in. And it, but it also doesn't feel like it's, it all feels of a piece. Yeah. Um, so I again, I'm sad that it's just it feels forgotten already. Uh, they just announced that this next season of Better Call Saul is the the final season. So once that wraps up, I'm gonna do a two series and movie binge. Uh, I'm really excited to revisit mm-hmm. this. And also, Aaron Paul is not getting the attention he deserves. I, oh, he's incredible in this. My next one is Uncut Gems. Uh, I believe this is gonna be ending up on your on your list. Uh, like. This is one of those movies that's very difficult for me, as in, like, I hate every single human being on screen, but it's it's also, like, really well made, and, like, it's, it, the, the, the chaos, you can talk about all this, but just the controlled chaos that the Safety Brothers create, it just thrusts you into it, everyone's screaming, yelling, and cursing, and people are being stupid and horrible and just making bad decision after bad decision, and for me, like, I can keep up with the film just out of, like, a morbid curiosity of, like, what are these idiots gonna do next, but... 
as it ends, I don't really have much emotional connection to it just because I kind of hate the people. Um, so like it, it doesn't rank higher, even though I really respect just kind of the craft of you know the kind of the chaos that the Safdie brothers created. Yeah, I'll definitely have more to say about this uh, when we get to top ten. Uh, I'll just go to my next honorable mention. I only have uh, two here, um, and I won't talk long about this because I know this will be in yours. Uh, I have Endgame as my honorable mention. So much hate. <laughs> Uh, th- and this is not at all, um, because, you know, this, so much of film conversation this year was defined by, uh, definitions and cinema and this and that. And uh, despite our disagreements on certain things, I fought with you in defending the superhero genre absolutely has a potential and often has reached whatever standard people hold as to like wh- whatever the gatekeepers consider cinema. I would say, based on their definitions, many of these have. And, and I also just disagree on their definition anyways. Um, I, I really do love Endgame. Um, so this wasn't because I, I'm looking down at it or the genre or anything like that. There are several years where MCU movies would have ranked in my top 10. Uh, the only reason this, this doesn't is I, I have issues with uh large portions of the middle act um and as much fun as i have with the final battle it starts on a very celebratory tone and it never really loses it either and so it's just it's this sustained kind of excitement which is cool but whenever i think about the greatest battles i i think of i mean it's it's what peter jackson does so well of just constantly layering and introducing new threats and even in return of the king the the greatest culmination the the greatest final chapter to anything in my opinion I, pelinor fields is this constant we win here we lose here and we don't even win the final battle really at the black gate and so i, I think the greatest battles are defined by genuine conflict and stakes like that like but you got like the first like there was a part of that battle where I genuinely thought this is where Captain America dies. Yeah, it definitely it goes there. It goes to these dark places. And so I, I may be overstating my case. I just I know that most of my memory of it is just like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And there wasn't really a lot of like, oh man, here here we go. It's army versus army, and this is like intense. Um, and then that and that's not the the only reason that I would even mention that is because I feel like the the entire third act is kind of defined by that battle. I mean, the battle itself almost is the third act itself, um, and so for a large portion, I'm like, I'm just like I'm smiling. I, uh-huh. I'm not. There's there's not a lot beyond that. Uh, also, they butchered Thor in every way, and and I cannot help but hold that against. Them. <laughs> All right. Um. So my final uh, honorable mention is the farewell. Um. This is one of those very subdued, quiet, uh, human films. Um, it's just a, a, it's about your know, family and culture clashes and traditions and just the all of the weird idiosyncr- idiosyncratic things about being part of a family and also you know they're immigrants and there's the the, the, the cultural elements of ch- dealing with Chinese culture, which, is, which was really interesting. Uh, having been to China quite a few times, like just kind of seeing little bits of elements that I recognized, um, having just, you know, a very, very small uh, knowledge of that culture. And so, yeah, it was just, it was just a very emotional movie, just the the story it was dealing with and just, but it was also, it was emotional on a very subdued level. It just everything, just about everything in the movie just felt like it was real. Like we're just getting a snapshot 
of this incredibly weird, awkward family life. And it was, it was, it, it was just a, you know, an honest, it felt a lot like Roma mm. um, from last year, year before last, where it was just very on the surface and honest in his portrayal, which, you know, which is both a positive in that it, it feels unique and refreshing, but for me, at least kind of a limitation because I feel like without the director using the tools of cinema to get me involved, there's only so far they can take me without, you know, making it more heightened. So like it, it gives a very unique feeling of emotion that you, that, that won't come from heightened film, but also it, it, I feel like there's a ceiling for me in how far I can engage in just like real life drama on film. So yeah, that, that, that's the end of my um, honorable manager. So moving to our top 10, uh, James, you go first. What is your number 10 film for 2019? Uh, my number 10 is little women. Um, I really like this movie and hearing me say that, would have surprised me 10 or 15 minutes into it. It would have surprised me two hours into it. (laughs) (laughs) We disagree. The the first 10 to 15 minutes, like it really did feel weird. And uh, almost all of that is the editing. And I don't, I don't even just mean the time jumping. Um, That's kind of where the conversation has landed largely around the movie. Um, But even beyond that, just it's the way the scenes it uses to introduce us to certain things, it, it feels weird even in retrospect. Like, it, given the full context of the film, I, it's not even like, oh, I get what she was doing. It's like, no, I, I think I just disagree with what she decided to start with. Um, and, but, but what, what surprised me is like, once, once I got into the movie's groove and once I felt the way it was moving and I got, I understood what she was doing with the, the two timelines, everything kind of fell into place. And, and I had one of the weirdest, most like weirdly emotional viewings with this um, in that like I cried a lot. Uh, and it wasn't even just during like these big moments because there are there are a handful of moments that just hit you. Um, there's there's very pronounced emotional moments and all of them landed. But there's also just like nice little moments um I having four sisters like I just I like the moments where we just spend with the sisters and we see them be goofy and have fun with each other and feel mm-hmm. like sisters. Um, we're talking about naturalistic a lot like this this the dialogue and overall presentation feels so often naturalistic here where like there's you know people are talking over each other all the time there there feels to be a genuine sense of like inside jokes with a family and so there were moments of just like niceness during the movie where I was just like getting teared up at um so so by the end i just i cared deeply about the family i i everybody felt real you know even though i don't know if i could be convinced that any of them were like 13 or whatever i (laughs) i i still like like florence Pugh, she doesn't look 13 and yet as when she chases after joe but the overall the acting of like she she didn't look but just her her body language yeah. um florence Pugh is like the breakout of the year between this and midsummer she is amazing and i hear she's great um yeah the the netflix film i'm forgetting the the king the uh, the outlaw king from uh that was that was 2018 but uh, fighting okay. with my family okay yeah. so she's in this year um, which is also great yeah so she's she's been knocking it out of the park and just like i i like the whole cast uh 
I think Timothy Chalamet is short I think we we get too many scenes of him being insufferable and not enough of him being likable to overall um, really stick the landing with where his character was. But even still, I just I loved so many of these characters and so many of these emotions just hit just right. And despite some quibbles I had with the editing, I still think Gerwig's like in the moment direction is pretty fantastic. Uh, so yeah, I, I ended up really loving it and. I had a surprisingly emotional theater experience with it. Yeah, I agree with everything you said about the moment-to-moment direction. Like, it's a charming, delightful movie. I just, I have a fundamental problem with the way she did the 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 nonlinear story. And I feel like the entire movie felt like nothing but highlights. Like, each scene felt like it was two, maybe two minutes long at the longest. So, it just felt like we're, we're just getting flashes and blips and... It didn't. It didn't feel terribly intentional with the way it was cutting back and forth, and I felt like it just the choice to do that nonlinear and constantly cutting back and forth pretty much undermined every single scene in the moment that it was happening, and it was just it was like a, a constant frustration. Even as I was being charmed by the characters and the moment, every time it cut, I just wanted to throw something. <laughs> yeah, it, and the thing is, I actually like. I don't even know if I want to like com- like try to rebut that because i think it's valid it's just for some reason it worked for me and that's if if this and uh pride and prejudice is any indication that's probably how i'm going to feel for a lot of these because while pride and prejudice didn't have the problem of the of the time jumping i still felt like it there was some level of being truncated in it like it it still felt like i was getting a greatest hits of pride and prejudice as opposed to like the full story but everything there like I, i prefer i definitely prefer pride and prejudice uh, but I feel like both felt like this is our, they both felt like adaptations. Like if I watched hmm. that without knowing it was a book when it ended and I was done talking about how much I loved them, I would also say, so was this, this was based on a book, right? Just it, cause they both, they both just feel it to me. Hmm. So my number 10 is yesterday. And I think that this is kind of a function of just not being a hugely amazing year. Like I don't think this film would have on a normal year would have been in my top 10, but just this is where it fell. Um, Yesterday came, is, is my number 10. As I said before, it's a, just a very charming, sweet romance. Um, you know, I, I said Danny Boyle's direction is really fun. Uh, Lily James is just this perfect angelic being that comes down to us in movies every now and then. <laughs> I just adore her. She's just so delightful to watch. Uh, Himesh Patel, uh, is, is the main lead, is really fantastic. Just it's just a fun, charming movie. You know, not much to say beyond that, but just it had, it's so enjoyable to watch and lots of awesome Beatles music. So what's not to love? I love the Beatles and I love Lily James and I, I love Danny Boyle. So I feel like I'm primed to really love it. This is such a fun theater movie where it's just it. It's built in a way for you to just like have fun trying to unravel it and then having the rug pulled out from under you're like well i want to unravel it but what do i unravel and now where's it going and uh all the performances everybody's just having a lot of fun with it um daniel craig is the the real standout overall for me um every scene he's in is so much fun and they they strike a really fun balance with the character where like he has these goofy idiosyncrasies with him and like you know he's he's not this like 100 percent always on the but like he has these little quirks 
But the movie also just never makes fun of him and never makes it seem like he's incompetent. Like, you're like, oh, wait, this this guy actually really is a great detective. And he's kind of an oddball. And he's, he's everything about him is just super fun to watch. Uh, Ana de Armas is, like, just so a good. pleasure in the role. I, I love being with the character. Um, and, and Michael Shannon. I'm one of the biggest Michael Shannon fans ever. And there's a lot of moments of just the family arguing. And every one of those scenes, there's just some line you can get from him in the background that's freaking gold. So just a very, like, it's one of, the, I feel like every year needs one of these kinds of movies of just, like, this was crowd-pleasing and not at the cost of, like, genuine, like, quality and wit. Um, so, yeah. We're I, getting Death of the Nile this year. I know. I'm so excited for that. Fingers crossed. I will have a lot to say about that later on my list. Um, so my number nine, <laughs> probably much to James's chagrin, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood. this hurts my heart. <laughs> and this is funny. Like, I don't, quote unquote, get this film on the level that the people who really love it do. You know, it's this love letter to old Hollywood and Tarantino writing the wrongs of the past. And oh my gosh, it's so emotional. For me, it's like, it's Tarantino. It's fun. Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, they're talking it's great. Just for me, this movie is all about the moment to moment where it's just, it's delightful. Leonardo DiCaprio just screaming obscenities in this trailer while kicking things. <laughs> it's, it's cinema. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so like, stopped I, at just three or four. You had to go eight. Yes. Yeah, so every second of this film is really enjoyable. I, I do think it stumbles in what it's trying to be overall, like the actual theme that Tarantino is going for. It really like did not hit me at all, but it is so much fun in the moment. And so just, it's so, you just entrenched it's so confident it knows what it is and just the, the the place and time that it it creates for itself and is just so authentic and enjoyable yeah, well i'll talk about this later uh my number eight is midsummer uh, this was a very weird theater experience the first time because i I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. The trailers are very, very creepy and unnerving, uh, but it, it didn't scream just overall horror. And there's a moment towards the beat, like in the first act, that is more of a conventional scare. But after that, it it never returns to that. It's just, it, it puts you so perfectly in the point of view of these people who are like these outsiders who are entering a foreign culture where everything feels off, everything feels foreign. And whenever this movie starts, there, there are certain scenes like the, the first scene that is intended to truly shock you. I don't know if another movie has elicited that kind of response for me, just this, something happens and I, I didn't feel like I was watching a movie. I felt like I witnessed something happen in real life because of just how empathetic the, the lead is for me where I just like, I feel like you are right there standing with her as this person who feels like they shouldn't be here, who feels like they can't get away and is forced to try to ride out whatever this is that is going on. Um, I initially really disliked where it ended up. Um, but after reading uh, interviews with Ari Aster and like what his intentions were, I started to rethink about things. I'm like, okay, I think I, I had a weird reading, but because of the way this was explained here, I, I didn't really notice that at all. But now that it's 
there. I'm like, okay, well, of course that means this. And, and there's just, it's like hereditary thinking about the ending now is just like, I don't know. It's, I, I really love the horror genre and it's these kinds that I love the most where it's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're going to call me a masochist, but these kind that just stick with you that when, it, when it's over, you're like, I cannot get this image out of my head. I cannot get this feeling out of my head. And as, as like unnerving as it is, it's also just something I appreciate so much. It's part of the reason why I love movies that they, you can just, you can watch a, a flat screen and just feel something that's only possible through it. Um, and so I, I, as a piece of direction, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible to me. Um, okay. <laughs> I kind of tuned out when you mentioned Ari Aster. Uh. Sorry, no. uh, <laughs> uh, so my number eight is Ford v. Ferrari. And uh, again, kind of another function of just the year that we're in. I agree with most of your criticism. I think there's, there's a weird tonal thing with this film, just to start with the criticisms, in that it, I feel like the theme and story and character arcs that were, that are kind of infused in this film are far more subtle and profound than the actual very broad, fun, upbeat tone that the film has. The, the, the film has like this, is this very, very broad tone where every, everything, all the characters are so big and loud and fun and the villains are so evil and maniacal. And, and I think both of those film, both of the films are kind of at war with each other could have made great films, but they're kind of together. So when it ends, the really subtle thematic ending is interesting, but it feels so anticlimactic for the big bold movie that we watched. Um, but back to the actual positives, the big bold movie is so much fun. Just the characters, you know, Ken Miles, uh, Matt David, and uh, I forget, what's Christian Bale's characters? I don't yeah, you know. Ken Miles, Ken Miles, Christian Bale. Carol Shelby is Matt Damon. Um, they're just, they're so much fun together. They have such a great chemistry. Um, just the, the the building of the cars as they're just figuring things out and taping yarn to the car for some reason and uh, and you know whatever. Ken Miles gets mad and starts saying talking about how terrible a Mustang is or something. It's just it's a lot of fun to watch and to be with. And when the racing gets going, it's really really thrilling. Um, just the way it's filmed, the editing is so tight and the cinematography, you know, the sense of speed, all of it, the sound design, it's just a really fun crowd pleasing movie, even though I have some kind of issues with the, the way the narrative meets the tone, even so it's just, it's a really enjoyable time with the movies. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I had a lot of fun with it. I think we may have just like different reactions to the way emotion is on movies where I, I just, I, because the characters are so loud and just broadly written i i couldn't connect with a single thing that was happening like i could let when it wanted me to laugh i would laugh but when it wanted me to feel i i just i never could because uh to me it's like no these are these are movie characters these aren't these aren't people this is this is a guy reading lines rehearsed from a script to to get this it's just none of this it, it all feels in some way manufactured so I felt. Yes, we know you have no soul, James. Uh, no, I just. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it it all it all felt like it was written to get this from me, and because it felt so overt in its intentions, I was just like, ah, 
this isn't a real person. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't feel anything for it because he's not a real person. Yeah, it felt like the script was trying to be something like the Lost City of Z and <laughs> examination of obsession and like that kind of thing. But whereas the the other side, the actual film was this kind of blockbuster tone. It's a, it's a really interesting thing that happened there. Um, so for my number seven, I have Uncut Gems. Uh, this this movie, like, I, I'm with you in that every single person in this movie is horrible every like every bad thing that happens to any one person they deserve um that it's it is a i I think what impresses me so much about this is I've, i've never seen a movie like it in which it is a constant escalation like the you owe this person money and you get it and then you gamble it and then you lose it and you go and get more money and you owe these people this and then you gamble that and it, it's just this constant building aside from like when they get back from the school and he has that quiet moment with his daughter like once the the real bets start happening it it feels almost like a single scene that's spread across numerous scenes and locations um and i i think it takes a really strong vision and just a genuine amount of talent in the direction uh, to be able to create that and sustain that kind of momentum. This movie, like, and hearing that I've, I've listened to a lot of interviews with the Safdie brothers and, and just listening to the way they edit it to, to achieve this, like as we, the scene transitions are so intentional where we, we cut on like doors opening, you know, we never, there's, almost no establishing shots it's we move and he's in this new building we move and they're already eating we like there's never a sense of pause it's this constant movement and every new movement escalates the situation the stakes are increasingly um it it starts lower stakes you know like you can't get like he's, he's getting punched in the face and just the way we're we're moving to where like it's genuinely becoming life or death moments and and despite everybody being despicable, everybody's also giving amazing performances. Adam Sandler is phenomenal in the lead. I think Lakeith Stanfield is really fantastic. And like I think the best actor and best supporting actor this year are like they're really really tough. So I understand why some cuts are being made. But I was really hoping that both of them could have been given nominations. Um, and just the the Safdie brothers style. Like just just them being so embedded in that '80s style. I remember as we're just we're going through the gym at the beginning, and you've got almost that like 1980s local news kind of uh, uh, logo coming together to spell uncut gems with the the synthesizers. I knew like okay, this this movie is is for me. I know <laughs> I'm gonna love this, and it's everything's just so washed out and this sickly blue color. It's, I just I really really love the movie despite hating everyone in it and i can't help but be impressed at the vision and the the direction of it like it just it in terms of what they're trying to achieve i think it's pretty much flawless yeah i mean i agree with most of that um again uh, like i think just not being able to connect emotionally just kept me at our move for the entire film despite you know res- respecting and I, I think even like I hated everybody, but I don't even think that that made me emotionally removed. It just, it made me angry, which is an emotion just on the, <laughs> another end. And I was just, there was this, I had this morbid curiosity, like, oh, what's going to happen to this guy that I hate? Oh, and now I hate him even more. And now it's going to, like, it's just, <laughs> I was very emotionally connected 
but just not in the conventional way that you would be with your protagonist. Um, so my number seven is uh, Dr. Sleep. So, so uh, I see that we forgot to mention in our favorite scenes of the year. Uh, was I, I know I wrote it down. I think it got deleted somehow. But uh, uh, the astral projection, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm saying. Um, I don't want to spoil it because, again, you know, I know a lot of people did not see it. But just that sequence has some of the most cre- creative visuals. And just the way Flanagan portrays the inside of the human mind and just with the sound design and the cinematography and the editing was just so wildly creative and fascinating. Um, but, but about this film, um, I really just I love the, the heart of the film. Ewan McGregor, obviously, is a fantastic actor. I think just the character and his journey across the film was really, really moving. Um, uh, what the film kind of had to say about just trauma, like nightmares and trauma and just dealing with living with pain and trying to exist with all these wounds was fascinating. Rose the Hat as the oh. villain. Rebecca Ferguson, I I don't I don't know what happened. It just seems to be completely forgotten. But I think she's just one of the all time great cinematic villains. Um, and no one's talking about it. Hi there. Just she's just she's so charming and fun because she's Rebecca Ferguson, but she's also like the most evil thing that was ever created in eternity, and it's terrifying. And she wears a hat better than any human ever. Uh, uh the little girl. Like I don't know the actress's name, but the actress who plays the little girl is fantastic. It's, I just I, I and there's some of the people talk about like, oh when they watch the trailer like oh this looks like it is this X Men or is this The Shining I'm like yes <laughs> and I love it just the way the 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 way the directions this thing goes and the ideas and that weird kind of X Men aspect with that that they explore I just I love every second of it and maybe it's because I'm a I'm a, Mar- I'm a Marvel nerd but. The the directions that the the story took all was always fascinating. Even though I, I have some quibbles with the climax, but I was just completely I found I found this film just so effortlessly engrossing. Yeah, I I, I definitely think it's well made. Um, and and Rebecca Ferguson is incredible in it. Like this witchy character is just like this weird seductive horrific monster from hell <laughs> she's amazing um yeah and the scene you're talking about is to me like easily the best sequence of the whole movie that was one of those moments where i'm just like this is this is a guy who just thought of something that no one else really has at least not in this way and it's really cool to see him get to put that on a movie um both like the the transitional sequence which is like just some of the coolest visuals ever. And like you said, the way the mind is portrayed, it's this weird, whimsical, like brutal craziness. It's it's awesome. And things are done to hands that should never oh. be done to hands. Yeah, it's like it's like if eternal sunshine got really violent. But uh I, I like I said, I have already gone over a lot of my issues. I'm curious what you would think on a rewatch here, knowing what it does and where and how it exists. So I, I think there are some things that I think would work better. However, there are other things that even like thinking about it now with the whole context of the film, like I don't, sometimes the, the every, things feel like, well, we, we've got to introduce a new roadblock or something else to go wrong. Like not to like no spoilers, but you know, like there's a shootout that just feels so weird i love that scene so much i it feels just 
to me it feels wrong in the movie it it feels weird um and it leads to something that i just i not like not as oh, just bad as like oh, i rolled my eyes at but i was like uh i had a feeling you were doing this and i don't really like it but i still flanagan is obviously an incredibly talented director uh, i liked him before this and then many of the things that i love about him are on display here so i i think my issues are mostly just with it as a companion to the shining because you know when you when you make a sequel you are actively constraining yourself to the world like you are choosing to exist in this world and uh I, I just think it doesn't work well with some of the things that were already in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I, I saw The Shining like the day before I watched this movie. I thought they fit together pretty well, with the obvious exceptions I, of the. Style, I think thematically the they they definitely do. Like the where his character ends up, I think is fantastic. And I, I so yeah, I think thematically it's a great continuation. But in terms of the lore and presentation, it just it. It's not this like, ooh, here's this other aspect, here's this other style that works well here. It's just, it it doesn't, they they feel like puzzle pieces that just aren't fitting together in, in every, almost every way outside of just the actual story itself. All right, so for my number six, uh, and I'm sure we're going to agree, uh, is Joker. <laughs> I I understand the criticism here. I just, it's not at all what I perceive in the film. For me, this is one of the most impressively in-your-face direction of the year. Like, every scene just feels so perfectly constructed. Like, it, it reached, like I think my one of my favorite things that a film can do and that a director can do is establish a tone and a mood and just never break from it. Just maintain something and sustain it and, and never break for any for the sake of anything else. And this movie does that perfectly. Even like in the lighter moments, and there are a few of them, it still feels like there's this twinge of like this isn't right. We we're spiraling somewhere. Um like almost all all of the technical aspects I'm pretty much floored by. I think the cinematography is easily some of the best of the year. Like down just the opening shot is of down this street in New York or in Gotham, which is essentially New York here is incredible. Like it should be an iconic shot. Um Phoenix's performance obviously is just otherworldly amazing. Um and the just the way the the score moves in between the scenes every it, it just i it grabbed my attention and it never let go um and and bookending those opening scenes with that stylistic you know cartoonish kind of um crawl it, it's just, i don't know i i really really loved it yeah i found myself in a very weird spot with this film like for, for the first half of the year i was like it's really it's g- pretty good, guys, but it's not that great. And then after you got nominated, and all the you know, all the film bros kind of came out of the work, like oh my gosh, sexism, whatever. Just like these, they, they they this became you know film culture's punching bag. I'm like, but it's okay. It's not that bad. It's actually got some good things. <laughs> so like I've kind of like been on both sides of the line. And yeah, I do agree. Like the the cinematography and direction are outstanding. I feel like like the Todd Phillips direction was like just such a like just a shocking surprise like the the hangover guy but actually the camera work and what it means thematically in the moment with the character like it's it's 
it's astonishing. I, I think the script is an absolute mess, but I think it is kind of anchored by the direction and Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix' incredible performance. So it's actually it's a it's still a good movie, but I just have issues with where it goes and like the. I find it, I found it just kind of very clunky and kind of all over the place sometimes. That that said, it's still just there are so many just mind blowing moments in that film. Yeah, my number six is Toy Story four, and I, I was a little disappointed the first time through. Um, but however, I think like on my second viewing, I really kind of got into what the film was doing, and I, I think it's still my least favorite of this of the four. But I think what it has to say, the way it continues. Um, the the Toy Story story, I guess for lack of a better term, is you know very you know profound and meaningful. Like I think each each film has taken you know these ideas of like these very human notions of like with the first one about 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 being supplanted and you know trying having to read you know refigure out who you are and the the, the second one was the, the fear of abandonment and growing up and the third one was actually growing up and you know, leaving and leaving home and no longer being a child. And this film is like a metaphor for, like, I guess, like empty nesters where, you know, the, the kid Woody is trying to figure out what is he if he no longer has a child, like if he's not. And it's not in the same really bitter, selfish way in the first film. It's, you know, but it's like a really interesting, the way the series has grown up and is now exploring like the issues of like, how how does how do you move on after retirement? Like it's it's a, just I think a really fascinating, interesting thematic idea that the film explores, which is why they chose that theme in a Pixar film, you know, a, you know, animated family film. Who knows? But I think the way it's explored is really interesting and profound. Um, the animation is, oh my gosh, so gorgeous! Like comparing this to just how plasticky and everything was in the first film like there are so many shots like you could if you told me it was live action cinematography i would have believed you and just the way they use camera tricks and like rack focuses and camera movements like integrating you know real camera techniques into the animation cinematography you say it's just a really lovely little movie like, again i don't think it's as perfect it has has more issues and isn't as it doesn't punch you in the gut as much as the previous two films but i think it's 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 a bit more quiet a bit more subdued but I think it still has something profound to say. Nice. I've seen people have just entrenched themselves on either side of this argument. And I, I think I'm in love with the series enough to to go in really hoping that, that I, I love it. It's Again, that's another one that I actually should have put on that list of ones that I missed that I, I want to see. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about the podcast pretty soon, catching up with the, uh, the Toy Story oh, series. Oh, that's true. I see you number five. All right. So for my number five, I have Marriage Story. This... This movie was another just incredible, like obviously for anybody who's seen the trailers and knows the subject matter, obviously an incredible uh, emotional experience where by the end we, we had a pretty large viewing and I was on the couch uh, just right in between uh, two of my other friends, like just shoulder to shoulder kind of squished. And by the end, like when the credits roll, I just turn over to one of my friends and we just have like this streak of tears down our face. Um, it's the obvious thing to gravitate towards is the performances. Uh, they are as amazing as anything you've ever heard about them. Um, the The argument scene is is going to be famous 
probably forever. It's it's just going to be one of those moments that people point to. Like this is, these are like the great scenes. Um, like this, this is how you convey emotion in a very realistic way. And I think this is also just a, an example of why just presenting things in an unflashy, just very human way is is what gets the biggest response from me. Be- especially if the filmmaking is done right, because you feel like you're there. Um, the only negative that would come that I think has come out of um, the performances being as amazing as they are is that uh, Bombach isn't getting or Bombach. I I don't know how you pronounce his last name. However, it is. I I don't think he's gotten completely like the the attention he deserves um, because his direction it, it's really quiet. It's unobtrusive. But it's one hundred percent there. There's a lot of really cool things he does with the editing, the way the way it flows, where we're with one character long enough, and we really like we empathize with them to the point of like they are protagonists, and this this other situation, and this other side is the antagonist, and then we like we find the connecting point, and then the narrative merges over there. The way the way it blends both sides of the situation into a single story is really great. Um, and I think one of the one of the things I love most is just its portrayal of both of these characters and how like it deeply humanizes both of them without ever trying to like it doesn't pick a side and it doesn't not try to vilify either. There are moments where even in the full context of the story, one character is acting as a villain because they are a flawed human. And so both characters are incredibly like flawed to the point of feeling like people uh you know nobody's making the movie decision it just it you know regardless of how nice a person is everybody has like that vindictive side so like when this happens it's like ah i can't hate you because i know you're so real and i know that person i know this kind of i don't know everything about it is so naturalistic sometimes to an uncomfortable extent um but it's just it, it takes so so much care and so much detail to craft that kind of story and that kind of environment. Um, yeah, it just, I was incredibly impressed by the time it ended after I dried my tears. Oh, so with my top five films, you could kind of just sort them any which way uh, because I really just love all of them. Um, but uh, my number five is Parasite. And yeah, everything you said about this one previously, just this, just this beautiful, tightly wound Hitchcockian film where it's just constantly building. Like, it's not just tension. It's also very playful and funny. And the dialogue between the characters, despite, you know, being in subtitles is so lively and fun that you can, you just kind of forget your reading sometimes. Yeah. And is the, the machinations, it's just the way it works and watch it all unfold. And then as things go down and just the tension that, that is able to build and it just builds and builds and builds and, until it explodes. And, I have some issues with how it ends, but like they don't they don't come close to touching just what kind of a transcendent experience the film was up till then. Well, talk about this uh, a little bit later on my list. So for my number four, uh, I have nineteen seventeen. Uh, you know, I, I already talked a little bit about um, what impressed me so much, so I'll just expound a little bit on it. Um, like I said, I, I thought that the one take would be this cool trick. Like I, I didn't think it would get in the way except for that, you know, maybe it would kind of mess up any, like any sense of like proper structure to it. But this movie just moves 
in the weirdest but most perfect way and he finds a way to create a narrative where this this unbroken storytelling just works so perfectly and on top of all of this incredible technical achievement he sneaks in an arc and you had no idea it's it's just it's one of those films that i think is just it's going to be remembered years from now like it it's it's so much more than a novelty it is a a film experience and and i didn't like it it almost felt more than just a film it felt like an experience and just i don't know what the runtime is but it felt like 30 minutes to me it just uh-huh. because of how present in the moment i was and because of how unbroken the narrative was and because my mind couldn't segment it you know we we don't have these normal kind of act breaks any sort of structure is hidden behind just the fact that it all feels like a scene um and so yeah, it's there's there's nothing really for me to compare it to because my mind just it was experiencing something new, um, and I'm really interested in hoping that 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 same kind of experience holds up on on second viewing. Uh, but honestly, even if it doesn't, even if I if, if you just kind of acclimate to w- what it is, it's still just an incredible piece of filmmaking. That will show up on my list later. <laughs> uh, so my number four is Avengers Endgame. I think we take for granted, we really take blockbusters for granted. And the thing that this film is able to do in taking, and I think that the Russos and uh, Marcus and McFeely, what they are so good at when not doing, when not doing Thor is (laughs) just looking at where a character has been and taking a little bit from here, a little bit from there and just touching on every little aspect of their journey and then taking that arc and stretching it a little further and, and, and or, or bring it in this case, bring it to a crescendo. What they do for Cap in this movie, what they do for uh, Tony in this movie, what they do for uh, Black Widow, all the other characters. It's the kind of film that we're just we've been on 20 films and yet what happens just feels so right and inevitable. And the emotional arcs that are able to take the characters on, like the, the fact that the first hour of this movie is, or maybe at least 40 minutes is just people sitting around being miserable and sad and also and then the heights that are able to take us by the end well so just i and i feel like never doing a disservice to the fact that it's a crowd-pleasing blockbuster and you have issues with the middle act i don't i think the second act is is what this film needed and what you know it feels very natural but for me at least it's just and then the final culmination when it comes time to wrap up the arcs for cap and for tony they they do it it is perfect and i just i'm just so emotionally full by the end of this movie, this crazy three hour ordeal that, that caps off this incredible 20 films that I've, you know, the ups and downs we've had that entire time. And even though they absolutely destroyed everything I love about Thor, I still come out of this film, you know, just loving the time, you know, the time I spent with it. And, and, you know, just having those moments that we talked about earlier, it's, it's, it's an achievement that, you know, as the rise of Skywalker showed, it it just doesn't happen. Like it it takes so much love and care and attention and just understanding of what you're doing. And even when they clearly didn't understand Thor, I'm just gonna keep coming back to that. Uh, <laughs> even with that, they they understood so much else of what Marvel is and what these characters are and what this entire universe is supposed to be. And it just works, which is not guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, I remember you messaged me after Rise of Skywalker be like, man, I, I wonder what Endgame's going to feel like now. Um, yeah, I 
I, I do genuinely love this movie. Uh, and where what it needs to do, it does. And not even just with like, okay, so they, they checked it. They got it right. It's like, no, they just, they hit it out of the park. Specifically with who are the two functional leads of the MCU with, with Cap and, uh, and Tony. It's, it's perfect. It's everything that this series built towards. And even if I didn't know that, like I... I was speculating the whole time leading up, you know, what does this character need? What needs to happen here? Um, it's whenever it happened, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that was the thing. Um, and my, my issues are, are able to fall away easily enough for me to just get like wrapped up in, in the emotion and in the movie and in some incredible moments. I think the first, 40 minutes to an hour like are pretty much perfect um i think the russos proved like they could just do a straight drama and hold their own um and I, I i it's not that i i dislike the ideas of the second act i just i think there's a lot of there's just tonal juggling that that bothers me um but again when taken as a three hour whole what they got right is like it is just it's standing so t- so much taller than what they got wrong. Um, so for my number three, I have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I it, it's weird, you know, because obviously we we disagree in in over how effective this movie was, but I think what makes the disagreement difficult is it's just you can't argue whether something worked or not for a person, you know, like it's it's we we can definitely argue on the technical aspects on on the script, like did this set it up. But ultimately, when it comes to like when the movie ends, if something didn't work for one person, I can't try to convince somebody that yes, it did. And if something does, you know, you can't convince someone that you know, well, no, it didn't. And and for me, everything worked pretty much perfectly. Um, I I really loved this kind of quiet, uh, concurrent thing running with uh, with Sharon Tate played to perfection by Margot Robbie. Oh yeah, Sharon Tate was, was in that movie. Forgot. Oh, <laughs> you uncultured piece of. So anyways, uh, I I think one of the one of the reasons that it it worked for me is all of the intention that Tarantino had, I I felt like with with Sharon Tate for me on my first viewing, I was just thinking like this this character is is just good. I she she's she's not done anything to, to I, I the movie does a weird thing where it almost doesn't even make her human it, it makes her this kind of idea just this this innocence that is supposed to be preserved i think her watching her own movie in the theater is just one of the most like blissfully fun joyful moments of the of the whole year for me um just to to see her happiness from everyone else just like getting a laugh from her from her performance um and so i i whenever tarantino like during his speech for the the best original screenplay at the globes when he was saying you know thanking all of his actors and he thanks margot robin he says just for the inherent innate goodness in margot robin like (laughs) the the level of pure goodness that you brought to one of my films. And whenever he said that, like it, it just, my mind just went like, yes, that is it. There's, it's just, there's something so good 
about her character and having that just quietly run alongside the story of uh, of Rick Dalton and when they coincide like I, everything she represented to me was was crystallized even like I obviously reading things about Tarantino afterwards and and what he thought of the 60s and and what these are like it none of it revealed anything to me it just it expounded on things that I already felt because by the end I'm like yes yeah, she she is just good and he is on his way out and he's looking for this thing. so when, whenever their stories converge I felt that revisionist thing coming together in a very beautiful intentional way where it's it's one of the greatest things you could do with art is just create your own art create your own characters and go back and rescue something so personal to you and so for me whenever they meet and we have uh whenever the movie ends and we just have the you know once upon a time slowly and cursive go across the screen i felt like i watched this incredible fairy tale that had this point and and like i said i, I didn't need any of the stuff from tarantino to to explain any of it I, I felt all of this in the moment and and uh reading about it it, it made it more personal because you really got to see how much it meant to him whenever he talks about it. But I felt just so much of that in the moment. And that's in addition to it just being an incredibly fun, incredibly well-directed, perfectly placed movie. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, I, I really, really liked it a lot the first time. And then a rewatch solidified it as like upper echelon Tarantino for me. Yeah. Like, so my, my thought walking out of the theater was like, I have a feeling that, Tarantino really deeply cares about Sharon Tate and that her murder was like this in deeply traumatic thing for him. But I feel that but the only reason I feel that is because she's in the movie. And he saves her life. Like <laughs> the movie itself never made me feel that like, obviously you got it. A lot of people like, I would, for me, it's like, I, ne- I only, the only reason I know that this was so important is because it's in the movie and it doesn't feel like it belongs. Um, so yeah, like, again, it's incredibly entertaining film, but I, I just did that, that emotional side of it just kind of <laughs> completely over my head. Maybe it'll hit me again on rewatch. So uh, my number three is 1917. Uh, you've talked about it a lot and like a lot of people, as you talk about this, just the tactical, you know, technical exercise. And I, I just cannot agree with that. I feel like the one, the one take is such an intrinsic part of the, just the art connection to the story, the way it, it locks us in with their experience, you know, with you know, the moments of horror and terror and just, and violence, but also just the kind of the mundanity of, of war, that you know, just the way nothing can happen. And we're just kind of stuck with the people. And it just, it completely entrenches us in the experience of, the, of these characters. The two actors are George McKay and I forget the other actor's name, but they're both really good and very naturalistic. Um, yes, they're, they're fantastic. They were standouts to me. Dean Charles Chapman. Sorry. <laughs> the casting is amazing. Like, I love that everybody just looks like 17, 18, 19. Like, they just look like kids. It really affects the movie in a positive way in terms of just making you feel. Yeah, just uh, not even getting into the, tech, the, the amazing visuals, which I'm honestly are still, you know, when I think about them, I, I, I just get completely wowed. But then as the emotional, as the movie starts near its end and the emotions just start to come out and there's uh, there's a, there's a scene between two actors, you know, after after the climax, just talking to each other, and it's so incredible and heartbreaking. And then the final shot, when you're just thinking about 
what we have been through, you know, mm-hmm. vicariously through these characters and just the way it kind of comes down you know, and Thomas Newman's beautiful score. It's like, it's not just the technical gimmick. It just, the emotion uh, you know, of a, of a narrative is absolutely there and so powerful. Yeah. You know, cause technical prowess can only get you so far. And the emotions I felt at the end are just unachievable by like, Hey, that was technically great. You know, like when it happened, you know, you know, not to spoil anything, but it's just, I realized that there was a story being told that I, you aren't even almost aware of because it's just told so unconventionally that when it happens, you're like, wow, I, yeah, I, I went on this whole experience with this character and we both came out differently. Yeah. It was, it was similar to how I felt, how I felt on the train in the end, at the end of Dunkirk, where it's like, this one is much more, much more emotionally accessible than Dunkirk, but a similar feeling where like, Oh wow, I really did care. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yep. Yeah, I had the exact same like a a certain line happens in Dunkirk and it was is that same way of like holy like I I thought that I was appreciating this movie like not that I was emotionally absent from it, but when it happens you're like, "Oh crap, I guess I cared a lot." Yeah, it's like you're just given permission to just let go of all the tightness in your chest. You're like, "Oh my gosh." <laughs> oh, that was that was rough. All right. So, my number 2 is The Irishman. There's been just this, this movie's been talked about a lot, um, and there are you know a lot of opinions out there. Um, for me, I know one benefit this movie had was I, I just got through binging his five major gangster movies, and what was cool is like three movies in to that, and you already almost perceive a thematic through line through his his involvement in the genre where like all, all of the criticism of oh he's just he's returning to the same genre blah 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 he criticizes other blah, blah. like i disagree with his comments on the mcu but that doesn't mean you turn around and say some of the ridiculous things that have been said about him the like there's interviews where he said the only reason he returned to the irishman he didn't want to do gangster movies again because you know like oh I, people are just going to say that i'm a one-trick pony blah 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 but it was because of the ideas here just felt so emotionally uh, relevant to to where he's at and to where De Niro is at, and I didn't know like you know they they've known each other since kids. Uh, his mom is in his you know early gangster movies, and you know whenever they were shooting, Robert De Niro was just little Bobby the neighbor boy. Like they they've experienced all of this growth together, and so like th- just knowing that, I usually try to divorce everything like that from my viewing, but there's just it, it couldn't help but creep in, and so. I just felt like this was beyond even the character of Frank Sheeran. This was just a meditation from just from any man. Like this is a, a man who has made so many decisions. You know, as he looks back on his life of crime, Scorsese is looking back on what he's done with the genre. You know, people celebrate a lot of these characters, and you know, he's he's made these gangster movies really fun, and it almost it feels like he's examining his legacy. Um, but even beyond just like that, the anything meta there is with the movie, I also just think the movie is incredibly well directed. Uh, I know it's super long. Maybe it's because I got used to three hour run times during this marathon, but I never felt bored and I never felt like I wanted to turn it off or I wanted it to end. Just experiencing the life of this man and these two allegiances that he's he's uh, not even allegiances, just friendships that he that he has. 
and the like the way he's being torn and what the the effect it has on his family you know everybody says you know the the last portion is is the best bit and it's so much better than everything before i agree it's the best bit but i think it's only as good as it is because of what came before and you know there's conversation about whether de niro should have been cast and all the de-aging stuff i i agree the de-aging doesn't always look perfect especially at the beginning but I, I just, I think it's incredibly important that the face in the wheelchair at the end of this movie and the stuttering voice has to be the person that we experience the story with. I like the, the cadence, the way he talks, his cadence, his body, like it, it feels like when he's in that wheelchair or when Pesci is in his wheelchair or when any of these characters are reaching to this end, these are these are real people that we've seen the lives of. These aren't just like different different people trying to portray the same thing and I, I don't know overall the the things that are that didn't work for people they didn't work for me but they didn't work for me for about a minute and then i just it 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 got lost to me the only time like there is a scene where he like goes and beats somebody up honestly aside from the initial scene with him and his truck at the very opening of the film those are the only two moments where i ever felt any sort of adverse effects from the cgi because i i don't know i just felt so enveloped in the tone and the story and these characters and despite his movies just having rich amounts of memorable and amazing characters i think these are the ones that i've cared about the most especially joe pesci as russell it's just i don't know i joe pesci is so good he like i want i need him to win the oscar like he especially if you know him as the guy from home alone (laughs) yeah or or like the the fast time like funny like a clown like it's just this quiet performance is just amazing. So, like, I don't know. I, I guess I, I understand in my head issues people have. But for me, like, 10 minutes in, and I was already confronted with it. Because I heard a lot about the movie beforehand. So 10 minutes in, I'm confronted by a lot of people's issues. And they were already kind of, kind of gone. And so I just, I don't know. I, I felt transported to another place and just... I lived a man's life. And when a movie can do that and just make me f- make it feel more like an experience than like this kind of, Hey, here's a, here's a movie for you to watch and just let know here's, here's a life. It's, it, it just, it really stays with me. Uh, for sake of time and your sanity, I will not expound on that. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice to say it stands at number 30. Uh, uh, my 70 uh, films this year. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, so my number two is knives out. Um, this is a perfect film. And it just does so many. And going back to Murder on the Orient Express, the reason I so deeply love that film, on top of the you know the wonderful mystery and just the fun quirky detective stuff and all that great stuff, was that it had such an you know, emotional wallop at the end, and you know, and underlying the whole thing, it had just great dramatic core. And Knives Out is a perfect mystery film. It has so many just delightful, delicious characters and. It's just the uh, we, we we've talked about it. It's, it's so intricate, so perfect. But underneath all of that is an, a, I think, a really good dramatic core. And this film, you know, has you know things to say about people and humanity and just being a good person. Like it's it's just there's a, there's a scene where Daniel Craig talks very kindly to an elderly woman, and I want to cry every time I think about it. And there's so much humanity underneath the film that Ryan Johnson made, and so even even you just getting past the fun and the fun and just technical wizardry of it all, 
there is a just a powerful heart to this movie that is it's it's one of those movies that's like literally the full package. Like he it gives me everything that Cinema has to offer, you know, the fireworks, the fun, the the the, the zaniness, the the humor, and also the dramas like all the emotions that I love to get out of cinema are just packaged perfectly in this movie for me. Uh, I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. I, the only thing I would add is I, I feel like I undersold how much I, I loved Ana de Armas in it. Uh, oh, yes. She represents just a kind of protagonist that I like a lot and I think is very underappreciated, which is just like the the good person, the, the, the kind-hearted person. She's the Captain America of this film with Captain America. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, the the last shot of this movie could not have been any more perfect. And it's, no. it, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And I, I love the character and I love just the way all of the interactions happen around her. Yeah. She is, she is wonderful. And I feel like it's, it's some more subdued performance. I don't know that it's going to get as much recognition as it should, but the fact that she is surrounded by these huge characters and, you know, so many respected actors and she, completely holds the screen like there's a scene with christopher Plummer where she almost out acts christopher Plummer, even though he's fantastic as well and i don't think he's getting the attention he deserves either um it's great it's great it's great all right so getting on to our number one of the year james what is your number one film this year all right so my number one of the year is parasite this movie is pretty much perfect i, I th- the most memorable thing i think about it especially with distance is just the the fact that there's really no genre it belongs to it is a th- it is definitely a thriller. The parasitical thrillers. Parasitical thriller. There, and we've got one entry, um, which is like it's just genuinely like laugh out loud, hilarious at times. It's it's incredibly dramatic, um, and I think ultimately, like why I place it so high is just, for me the ending really it, it it comes together in an incredibly powerful way. Um, the I I was messaging uh the, the film chat that we were both a part of, uh I I saw it with a, another friend who's also in it and we I I turned to him and I wanted to say something but I realized I just I got a whelp in my throat and I was just, I had this weird feeling and I looked at him and he was like dude my hands are kind of shaking and I'm like okay I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only person who's just affected by this right now. It, I think it's it's just because I'm rarely affected by like these bigger social commentaries. And I think it's especially American ones, just because I feel like the point is so it's just, it infects every single scene and, and steals scenes. Whereas here, like this, this narrative entirely works. And there's, there's just, I don't know. There's a level of nuance brought here that I, I think is sorely missing. Yeah. I I would put this and knives out against, Jordan Peele's Us and Get Out every day of the week. And I think these are examples of how to do it without, you know, ever losing the narrative and characters. Yeah. Like they, cause they're, they're placing the weight on the story and they're not relying on like, well, okay. So yes, this doesn't make sense, but, but what it actually means is this because those, those should never be at odds. I, what a movie means and what is actually happening. Like one should never have to fail for the other to work. And, uh, and in this case, I, I really think that's the case for Parasite. I, I think the cinematography is amazing. The Whenever things go down, I just, I was gripping my seat in a way just, I I rarely ever do. And I live off of horror movies and thrillers. Uh, it, the, the characters are so amazing and attention grabbing. Uh, the performances are fantastic. It's just, 
and there are so many individual sequences where I'm just like completely flabbergasted at what's going on. Like there's a, a scene where we, we, there's a lot of like of heavy rain and we see the way it affects people. There, there's some of the most gorgeously composed shots in that sequence I've ever seen. They're amazing. And it just, I, I don't know, it, the way it emotionally affects me is really great. And, and again, uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about the ending at a later point or even just after the recording or whatever. But for me, it comes down to a place where I'm like, wow, I, I feel like I get what you're saying. And I, I think it's cool that you said it this way. And that you said this at all instead of the way that I so often see it being told. Um, and it's it just the the final shot was just like it was I don't know, it felt like the cherry on top of it just an incredible experience with a movie that's just not comparable to anything else that I can think of. It's really good. <laughs> uh, so, so my number one of the year is Jojo Rabbit. And that is absolutely shocking to me, just considering like the things we had to say about about a movie like Thor Ragnarok, which I do like. I like Thor Ragnarok. I like Thor Ragnarok a lot, but I was genuinely wondering if Taika Waititi had any dramatic capabilities after watching that movie. And oh boy, uh, not only is this movie absolutely hysterical, and which you know a movie about you know, Hitler youth and an imaginary Hitler friend and Nazi Germany is absolutely hysterical, which is, I know a lot of people have a problem with. Um, I think everything is fair game as long as it's treated with respect. Um, and I think this film is like the balance of tones that Taika Waititi is able to create in this film is completely astonishing for me. Just the way he's able to just go from just absolutely laugh out loud, hysterical comedy to, really taught tension to some of the most raw scenes of heartbreak that I've ever seen. Um, and, and then back and, and then back to the humor again later on, just, it, it just, it's so perfect in the way it balances that tone. And, and the way the whole, the concept of showing Hit, Hitler's Nazi Germany through the eyes of a 10 year old boy who starts out the film as a firm believer who as you know, he's, is massively into swastikas and we get, uh, we just get to watch kind of his journey as different things happen. And Nazi Germany is crumbling around him and you know, the, the disillusionment and it's, it's so delicate and raw and real. And it's so completely non preachy, which is why I love about it. It just, it doesn't feel the need to just you know, to to constantly preach. It just it just exists, and we get to have empathy with this character, who obviously is not in a good place when he starts, and we just get to see that journey of the character. And again, just the balance of tones where it can be just hysterically funny, and in one moment, and the next moment, completely break our hearts, and just have a scene of raw, delicate humanity. In the next moment, it's again another one of those films. It's the full package. It gives me so many different emotions and tones and styles. And I think does them all perfectly. Um, I was I did not know what to expect from this movie, and the first time I saw it, it blew me away. And then I saw it again, and it just left me like this quivering mass of emotions. And uh, it's so freaking good. 
I'm like I was so disappointed that I wasn't able to see it. I I I think satire is something that needs to be protected. I think it's an incredibly like powerful um like kind of genre and I think it can do things that only satire can do. And so and it, I don't know. like we should learn to laugh at ourselves sometimes. Like the world is you know, there's horrible things in the world. But sometimes we, we just should also learn to laugh at just like there's there's nothing more depowering to bullies than laughing at them and making them a joke. Exactly. Have we learned nothing from Charlie Chaplin? Exactly. Like I think people you know there's a lot of, should we be laughing at this and and I understand like there's always a fear and I think you just got to see is it, is it being treated with respect and I don't I don't see any way that you can view this film as not being respectful or you know, it, it, it knows what it's saying. I, I don't think there's any confusion at all about what it's trying to say, what it's trying to be, and what its message is. But it does it in a very, in a, I think, a, a very delicate human way, which I think is like goes beyond just simple satire. This is a fantastic drama. Good stuff. And so now I am almost mildly looking forward to Thor Love and Thunder. <laughs> I still have a lot of fear and apprehension, but maybe he could do something good with that. All right, so just really quick, let's run through our top 10 of the year again, James. What, just, what were your top 10? All right, so for me, uh, my number 10 was Little Women. Number 9 was Knives Out. Number 8, Midsummer. Number 7, Uncut Gems. Number 6, Joker. Number 5, Marriage Story. Number 4, 1917. Number 3, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number 2, The Irishman. And number 1, Parasite. And my top 10 were... Uh, number 10, Yesterday, number 9, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 8, Ford vs. Ferrari, 7, Doctor Sleep, 6, Toy Story 4, 5, Parasite, 4, Avengers Endgames, 3, 1917, 2, Knives Out, and number 1, Jojo Rabbit. All right, and so before we close out, I do want to talk about some of the films that we are looking forward to in 2020. Um, so James, what are some of your most anticipated films of 2020? All right, so I've got several, and I'm not I'm not going to talk about them at length or anything. I'm just going to go through the the list that that of films that I've that are on my radar that I'm very excited for. Um, so, uh, Tenet from Christopher Nolan, obviously. Uh, Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright. Death on the Nile, Kenneth Branagh. Uh, A Quiet Place Part Two, John Krasinski. Uh, Dune from Denis Villeneuve. Top Gun Maverick, actually, I really liked the trailer, uh, and. I liked Oblivion, which is also by Joseph Kaczynski. Uh, the Gentleman, uh, which I'll see hopefully pretty soon, by Guy Ritchie. Uh, no Time to Die by uh, Kerry Fukunaga. Uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead uh, from yep. Taylor Sheridan. Uh, Without Remorse. And I'm not actually sure who's directing that. Uh, it's, it's a reteaming of Taylor Sheridan writing and then the director of Sicario 2, which he, which he wrote. Oh, okay. Um Mulan, which is probably the most excited I've been for one of these live-action remakes. The Invisible Man from Lee Wannell. Uh, Birds of Prey from Kathy Ann. Godzilla vs. Kong from Adam Wingard. Uh, Mank from David Fincher. Uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things from Charlie Kaufman. All right, so I, I, there's some crossover, but I'm just going to read my entire list. So the first one is uh, Soul by Pete Docter, Pixar movie. Uh, Titanic, Christopher Nolan. Last Night in Soho, which is a, a horror film by Edgar Wright, which I have no idea what to expect with that. <laughs> uh, Kenneth Branagh's Death and Nile, you know, Murder on the Orient Express was one of my just beloved films from 2018. You know, John Krasinski's Quiet Place Part Two, Dune, you said that. Uh, the King's Man, uh, Matthew Vaughn, it's a prequel to the King's Man movies. Uh, I really like, the, I love Matthew Vaughn's style. Just uh, the way he directs action is just kind of mind blowing for me. Uh, Top Gun, um, 
Another movie that Joseph Kaczynski made, uh, Only the Brave, came out, I think, in 2018, was just a really, really good little movie that kind of flew under the radar. Onward, it's a, a Pixar movie from Dan Scanlon, the director of uh, Monsters University. Uh, Black Widow, I mean, obviously. Uh, the Gentleman, as you mentioned, Guy Ritchie, hopefully he gave his groove back. Artemis Fowl, which was <laughs> this was on my most anticipated list in 2018. Um, it didn't happen, unfortunately. Uh, this is a Kenneth Branagh Disney movie that I'm I'm hoping is good. No Time to Die. We're, we're, we're currently going through um, my first time through the entire Bond series. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's an experience. Um, it's got its ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, Those Who Wish Me Dead. Uh, just if he can, like, if Taylor Sheridan can summon, like, half of the raw emotion that he did with uh, Wind River, it's going to be awesome. Oh. And, we, and more about Without Remorse. Not only is it a reteaming of Taylor Sheridan and the director of Sicario 2, which I, I don't love as much as Sicario, but I think it's still a really solid movie. This is a Michael B. Jordan movie about the character John Clark, who is portrayed by Willem Dafoe and, and Leah Schreiber in the Jack Ryan movie. So it's like a, a Jack Ryan adjacent story, which I think is perfect for Taylor Sheridan. Yeah, I, I to expound on that a little bit, I have a lot of reason to be excited for this. This is actually one of my favorite books of all time. Oh, really? And the existence of this book is partially why I haven't watched uh, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit out of spite because they got the rights <laughs> to Without Remorse. And I was like, all right, they're geared up for a movie. And then it was like an original story. I'm like, oh, this sucks. So like Taylor Sheridan, Michael B. Jordan, based on this, like one of my favorite books of all time, I, I'm incredibly excited. Then there's a West Side Story, Steven Spielberg doing a musical. Oh, yeah. I need to add that. Yes, I'm very excited for that. Uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7 is Aaron Sorkin's second directorial attack. I thought Molly's game was really solid. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to see what he can do. He's, he's always, he's, if nothing else, the dialogue is amazing. And I, I love me some dialogue. And then finally, uh, Jungle Cruise. Um, this is a, a, I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's going to say a Jaume Colette Serra. Um, his kind of foray into, his big foray into blockbusters. I like his his Liam Neeson action movies are ups and down have their ups and downs. I enjoy about half of them a lot, and then The Shallows is fantastic. So I think he he's always he's really reliable and and just gives us creative fun movies. So I'm hoping that he can break into the blockbuster th- um field and give us something that's fun with this Disney movie. All right, so that 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 is my list of most anticipated films for 2020. Uh, all right, so I hope you enjoyed this I'm really lengthy and meandering uh, retrospective of the year of 2019 in film. Um, so next week, uh, we are returning to the MCU with Captain Marvel. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> this is the only MCU film since uh, Thor The Dark World that I only watched once in theaters. So that probably says some things about how excited to talk about it. <laughs> but uh, I am not in love with it, but I have a feeling I'll be on, on defense for a bit. <laughs> yeah this is gonna be a lot to talk about so until next week we will see you in the sequel see ya